Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Friday morning, November the 11th, 843-661-0937. Before I even um, welcome the Royal Rev of Radio and Freehold, let's wish all of our veterans a happy Veterans Day. Um, you know, we disagree and we squabble and we yell and we scream and we complain and we do a lot of things that we aren't very proud of. But I hope the one thing we will always do as long as we remain the United States of America is, um, is support our veterans. And I'm thinking about wars that veterans have fought in. Um, I doubt very seriously many were very keen about going where it was they were going. I was with a friend yesterday who served in the U.S. Marine Corps. And it was the, um, I mean, it was the, the Marine Corps' birthday yesterday, their celebration, and today's Veterans Day. But um, he was telling me about the 14-hour the plane trips to Okinawa. And he said, that's the last place I wanted to be going. But I signed up to go to Paris Island. I left Paris Island, and I was um, I was the property of the United States government. <laughs> and they sent me to Japan, and um, a small-town kid from Dillon County or Marion County was on his way to Japan in a 14-hour plane flight um, over nothing but the ocean. Tell him a story. I said, my wife and I went to the Bahamas several years back we were trying to figure out yesterday when uh, two days ago when it was i think it might have been 2008 my dad died in 04 my mom died in 06 and i remember in about 08 my wife and i uh went to the bahamas and we were flying across the ocean and my wife had the window seat and she looked at me and said what would happen if we crashed and i said we'd be wet asses (laughs) (laughs) of course you did (laughs) and then we're more than likely you know dead well, but that, that well, you know, well, no, you'd be all right. You know, they talk about the uh, seat cushion is able to be used as a flotation device in that. You crash in, in a plane situation. in the ocean. I know. I, you don't no. land. I mean, hey, our, our good buddy Mike Nunn, uh, who was in the um, the Miracle on the Hudson, right. and I, I'll get Mike. Mike hadn't told that story in a long, long, long time. True. Mike Nunn, who joins us on one Thursday a month on behalf of the Florence County Sheriff's Department, Mike was in the plane that landed on the Hudson, the Miracle on the Hudson, the movie Sully. I mean, he, he was, uh, I think it says left wing, about three-quarters of the way. Anyway, um, but but you don't, planes don't normally land in the ocean. Planes normally crash into the ocean. Um, you're right, Riff, if you survive the uh, the impact, I would imagine you grab that flotation device and did the best you can. How many, how many times can. we heard that spiel? Something around, something's wrong with my microphone? No. To you? Not to me, it doesn't. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just sending you a message. Oh, you were? Yeah. Something is wrong? Okay. Sounds like it. Sounds uh, distorted. Am I good? Yeah, you're perfect, Ken. No, I'm not. I'm not bad now. <laughs> so, so until we get my mic fixed, I guess I'll just have to be quiet. Okay, good deal. Um, I, I do think testing, something's testing. wrong now. Well, but I, I hear something I'm, now. I'm flipping buttons on the mic. <laughs> We're doing this live. Okay. Hello. Yeah, you cut hey, it off. Try now. Okay. No, that's, that's not. better. No. I mean, I don't hear any problem. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Hey, we'll we'll not talk sports this morning because um. Chris Clark and Jason Priester, we think, will be with us in the 9 o'clock hour. We're, we're going to mislead you this morning. We said the 9 o'clock hour every Friday is decompression hour, but we've got a Fox News guest from um, Arizona, boots on the ground, so to speak, and I, I think it's worth our time to hear from a reporter in Arizona of the latest from the Senate races in both Arizona and Nevada. Um I'll start the show with kind of a theme of today's show. Rev asked me this morning. I think I, he didn't ask me. I think I volunteered. I, I, I'm beginning to figure this thing out. What do you mean? Uh, I'm beginning to understand kind of sort of what happened Tuesday. Um, what had happened was uh, 
I think that, and, and I wrote a sentence down. I actually made a note in my phone yesterday and wrote it down again. And um, what's the guy's name before Tucker on Fox? Jesse. I mean, he made he made a, 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 a similar implication uh, when, when he implied that, and, and I wrote this yesterday, um, your lot in life is really not your responsibility. Someone took something that you deserve to get. Stick with me for a second. Hold on to that. Your lot in life is really not your responsibility. Someone took something that you deserved to get. That's the message of the, of the, the, the liberal Democrat movement in America today. And, and they're not in the vote business anymore. The Democrats, there are certain football programs that get more creative. As a Gamecock fan, I'll give you an analogy. As a Gamecock fan, I'm always bothered that the University of South Carolina has a bigger athletic budget it's a bigger university. It's in a more prestigious conference. But guess who built their football operations? Or guess, guess who built a, um, an indoor practice facility first? Clemson or Carolina? Clemson. Guess who built a football operations building first? Clemson or Carolina? Clemson. Clemson. Guess who built an NIL-dedicated facility first? Clemson or Carolina? Clemson. So, so, so Clemson has understood um, the strategy of how to win and the sport of college football. Um, the Gamecocks should be better than they are. And, and you know, kind of Gamecocks underperform, Clemson overperforms. I mean, historically, that's been uh, the way it goes. So here's what the the, um, the Democrats have done. And nobody can deny this. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying the election was stolen. We, we said yesterday, I've never said that. I've never said over the air that the election was stolen. But but the Democrats have now trans, um, they've transitioned from being in the vote-getting business into the ballot distributing business. Their their model now votes versus ballots. They're in the ballot business. Okay. They're they're not in the vote business any longer. They're in the ballot distribution business. And whatever states allow, but the more liberal, the early voting and absentee voting and unsolicited mail in voting, uh, the, the more the more Democrat states pass these liberal laws that allow for those you know um, loose loosey-goosey requirements of who votes and who does it, the better off the Democrat does. Um, every moment that passes, Adam Laxalt is less likely to win. The slower the returns come in in Nevada, the less likely Adam Laxalt is to hold on to the 1%, I think 1.1 percentage point lead, um, and the, 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 the more likely it is the Democrat wins in Arizona. The Democrats in the lead in Arizona uh, we believe there are some um, some same-day early voting ballots that are left to be counted. Um, the Lake and Masters team believe that those will favor the Republican. Uh, those were people that didn't trust the system, didn't trust the experts. They kind of went to the poll that day and delivered, hand-delivered um, that ballot. It's insanity that we're Friday, and we don't know who won Nevada or Arizona. But that's insane. That's third-world country stuff. And I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. We should demand and expect better of the people who have a job to do once every two years, and they're getting about a $4 million. I think Tucker said last night, might have been the night before, in real dollars, and I'm counting for inflation, the Hoover Dam would have cost about $880 million. The state of Arizona gets $4 billion. I mean, that's their budget. That's their annual budget. I don't know how much of that they get to run elections, but I mean, they've got plenty of money to effectively and competently run elections. Are they intentionally incompetent? No, of course they aren't. There's a scheme. And once again, I've never said the election was stolen, but the Democrats have, they've gotten real creative 
with these lax laws, these lax regulations, uh, the, the allowance of we just, you know, not supervise who votes and when and, and how many times they vote. The Democrats are not in the vote business anymore, but rather the ballot business. And their, their, their desire, their end game is to distribute as many ballots as they possibly can to as many people living, dead, breathe, it doesn't matter. Let's just, let's flood the state with ballots and let's hire people to go harvest those ballots. Now, every ballot may be legitimate. I doubt it, but every ballot ballot may be legitimate. I mean, Miss Smith on Rosewood Drive may need someone to come pick her ballot up. She may be disabled. She not be. She may not have uh, her her the fiscal ability it takes to go to the poll. But but in the states that have the most liberal laws relating to ballot distribution and ballot harvesting, the Democrats just. I mean, I think Tucker said like like eighty percent. That there are thirteen states in America that have laws that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with. I mean, if I were the election god of America, not, but if I were, that then I would require certain things that these 13 states don't require. Every delay we have leads to a better outcome for the Democrats. What's the, what's the old saying? It's not who votes that counts, it's who counts the votes? Correct. And, and it's who distributes the ballots. Who makes the law saying, um, you've never asked for a ballot, you've never voted, but we're mailing you one anyway. That's kind of the... the, the it, it, they turned unlikely voters into likely voters. Robert and I were talking a little bit. I mean, some of the modeling. I mean, we've always heard the best models in politics are the ones that poll who? Likely voters. The ballot the, 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 the ballot distribution and harvesting system of the Democrats, and I didn't call it a scheme. I think it kind of is, but, but it, it's allowed by law. In these 13 states, I mean, it's kind of law of the land. Miss Smith has never voted. She didn't ask for a ballot, but she gets mailed one anyway. Somebody knocks on Miss Smith's door. Miss Smith, are you in there? Yeah. Did you get a ballot in the mail? Yeah, but I've never voted. Wouldn't you like to fill out that ballot? I'll be happy to help you fill that ballot out if you've got a few moments. Well, yeah, but of course, that's mighty kind of you. Um, but I don't know who to vote for. Well, I can tell you that this this Adam Laxaw wants to cut your Social Security. He wants to cut your Medicare. I just think that's what happens. I think it happens in these 13 states far more than we can imagine. So, so, so the argument I'm making is, historically, we believe that elections are turning out the vote, right? I mean, you turn out your crowd and you win. You got excited, enthusiastic. Who has the enthusiastic base in this election? I, I think Republicans are crazy to believe that model exists today. And what the Republicans have to decide is, are we going to invest in an infrastructure that knocks on Miss Smith's door? Miss Smith, are you in there? Yes. Miss Smith, if you... um. Would you like to vote? Did you get a ballot? I did. Um, but I never vote. I don't know why they mailed me that ballot. I don't ever vote. Miss Smith, I'd love to help you fill that ballot out. Did you know how crazy these Democrats are? Did you realize that they want young children, Miss Smith, to be allowed to enter into a medical contract to have their sex changed? Miss Smith, if we don't vote for these Republicans, that's what's going to happen. Your great-grandchildren will be allowed to have an operation when they're eight or nine years old, that allows them to have their sex changed. Miss Smith says, I don't want any part of that. I mean, what, what can I do? Well, vote Republican. You got to fight fire with fire. In these 13 states, stop spending money advertising on television. It's ballot harvesting. We've got to get good, we being the Republicans, we've got to get better at ballot harvesting. We're not in the vote turnout business any longer. We're in the ballot harvesting, ballot distribution, 
and ballot harvesting business. That's why it's Friday, and we don't know who won in Nevada. We don't know who won in Arizona, and we probably won't know by Monday. We probably won't. I mean, I, we, I mean I, I've got an idea. I mean, I think Laxalt holds on. I'm not as sure as I was yesterday because they didn't count many ballots yesterday. I said yesterday, Barry, and I disagreed. I still think Blake Masters comes up short. Um, I think I think Lake wins the governorship, but I think Masters comes up short, um, a little shorter than I thought he would yesterday. I think a big 100,000 uh, votes today. But but the, the Republicans need to understand that the model is different today in these 13 states. And it's not about advertising on television. It's not about get out the vote. It's get a ballot in someone's hand and help them decide who to vote for. Ballot distribution, ballot harvesting. Democrats are not in the vote business any longer. They're in the ballot business. And that's the way it is in 13 states. And until they change those laws, rules, and regulations, the Republicans better fight fire with fire. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Yeah, that was probably one of the best opening talks I've heard, Doug. You, know, you just nailed it 100%. But you know what pisses me off besides everything is everybody being polite. These senators, you know, everybody said, hey, man, I'll be bringing up the 2020, you know, 2020 election. But the 2020 election, what they did wasn't just about Trump. It was about they stole the Senate and the House. Everybody needs to be screaming from the top of their lungs, calling foul, calling them what they are. They're, they're liars, they're cheats, they're fascists, they're racist, they're communists, they're godless, they're evil incarnate, they're doing the devil's work, and you need to blast it from the rooftops. Don't, and this is nothing about an honest or fair election and Democrats that go hand in hand. Nothing. There's no way in hell that Democrats can sit there and say, everybody show up to the poll Tuesday, and we'll all be there, and you'll all be there, and we'll have an honest and fair counting of who votes for who. They couldn't win crap. The more I think about it, yeah, I still agree half the country's sorry as hell, but I still don't think that there's any way in the world that the Democrats can win any kind of an honest election. And what you're talking about, when somebody shows up at somebody's house, and basically fills out a daggone uh, a ballot form, you know, and telling them who to vote for. If that ain't illegal, I don't know what the hell is. I mean, you know what I mean? That's, I mean, the whole damn thing is, is daggone on. Uh, they're cheating. They're stealing. They're lying. They're, yeah, they're now they're accusing uh, the boy from Florida of cheating. They play us like a cheater fork. It's like Clemson, Carolina. We still have built our our, our you know, you know, you say Carolina had built this, that, built that. Neither have the Republicans. You know, and again, we're sitting there, uh, we're sitting there raising hell and fighting, but where the hell are the Republican politicians raising hell and fighting? I mean, hell, even the ones that are getting their ass uh, beat and getting the election stolen from them are sitting there on uh, Sean Hannity's a damn sissy, sitting there going, well, you know, we just got to do that. They may be sick to my stomach. They haven't got a drop of fight in them, and they deserve to lose. They aren't worthy to win because they're a bunch of cowardly whips. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Yeah, early Friday morning, Breeze just had his, um, <laughs> his Wheaties this morning. But, but the point I'm trying to make, and, and uh, that's very complimentary of Breeze to say, you know, um, or we set the bar real low on our opening segments <laughs> every morning. No, if I were the RNC chairman, and I mean this sincerely, I'd have a press conference. And I'd say, look, we're going to shift gears. 
I mean, we, we have invested enormous amounts of money in the, our get-out-the-vote effort. Because of the 13 states and the way they model and, and run their elections, we're going to invest more money in finding out who got the ballots. And before the Democrat operative gets there, the Republican operative gets there. The hypothetical Miss Smith I'm talking about. I mean, when, Smith, when Miss Smith opens that mail, Miss Smith has never voted in an election. She is an unlikely voter. She is a, a registered voter, but she's unlikely. And some of these states, Rev, they're sending ballots to people who aren't even registered to vote. But I think nine of the 13 states, they mail a ballot to a person that's not even registered to vote. Okay, and of how course, can they do that? Well, I mean, they, they pass laws. I mean, these Democrats hmm. have passed laws that, that allow this to be normalized hmm. in some of these states. And, and we, we, you know, the, the conservatives find themselves in a, in a quandary or a conundrum. We don't like the federal government federalizing these things, right? I mean, do we want a Roe v. Wade to be overturned and states decide, you know, when and someone can have an abortion or not? We like gun rights to be, I mean, we don't, you know, the gun right be different because the Second Amendment, you know, guarantees your right to keep and bear arms. But, but anything the Constitution doesn't directly speak to, we want the states, but the Constitution says the states are to run government, and the states are to run the elections. So we don't, we don't do counter to the Constitution. But, but what, the, what the RNC, and see, this amazes me that the RNC chairman hadn't resigned yet. I mean, that, that's confusing to me that the RNC chairman is playing checkers and the Democrats are playing chess. The Democrats have built a scheme. It's distributing ballots to people that, that have never voted, not interested in voting, but help them vote. Once again, Ms. Smith, did you get a ballot in the mail? I did, but I never voted. I'm not sure I understand why I got that ballot. But Ms. Smith, don't you agree it's your patriotic duty? To help elect your government officials? It probably is. I've just never gotten real interested. I've been watching Seinfeld. I mean, I don't get real interested in that political game. I mean, it's nasty and mean, and I, you know, those Republicans and, and Democrats. I mean, I don't miss Mia. But you know the Republicans are trying to cut your Social Security and your Medicare. I mean, if they get in charge, your, your life's going to be fundamentally different. Don't you think you need to fill that ballot out? I probably do if they're doing that. Yeah, I probably do need to do something about that. Well, go get that envelope, and I'll help you fill this thing out. I don't want you to lose your, your Social Security and Medicare. I think that's what's happening by the millions, at least the hundreds of thousands in these 13 states. Oh, by the millions is probably an overstatement, but 100,000 votes in Arizona wins it. 100,000 votes in Pennsylvania wins it. 50,000 votes in Nevada win it. And that's where they're concentrating they their that out too. And if we don't find an RNC chairman that's willing to play under those terms and conditions, we aren't going to win Pennsylvania. We aren't going to win Arizona. We aren't going to win Georgia. Now, Georgia did something. And I'm going to tell you something else Georgia did that we're going to find out is going to pay dividends. Remember the Senate Bill 202 we talked about? And, you know, they, uh, they changed some of the drop boxes. They changed some of the stipulations of who gets a ballot and who doesn't. One other thing Georgia did, and let's give the, the Georgia General Assembly, the Republicans in the Georgia General Assembly deserve a little credit here. You know what they did? We would have had a primary in January. The Republicans shortened the period. We're going to have a primary in about three weeks. You know why the Republicans did that? It gives you far less time to do the ballot harvesting when the primary is three or four weeks after the general than you have a couple of months. You're just not going to harvest as many ballots in a month as you would in two, period. So, so you, I mean, there's a, there's a certain period of time you've got to give campaigns to, to raise some money, get back on the airways and do their thing. But the Georgia General Assembly got real aggressive in saying, because I remember reading the language of the bill, the Senate bill, and I said, okay, I, I don't know that I understand, but now I do. If ballot harvesting is that prevalent, 
and it's not going to be as bad in Georgia, but Georgia basically said, if you're going to, I mean, if you're going to pull some shenanigans, you're going to do it in a month, not two. And I think that is very much to Herschel Walker's advantage. And if Laxalt holds on in Nevada, I think Walker's got a 50-50 chance. If we work through this conundrum of Trump and DeSantis, which is, wow, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I really don't. I don't know what to make of that. don't know what to say about that. Um, it's disappointing to me. And, you know, you, know, and you know how I feel about Trump. It, it, it is the... Um, I don't get it. It's one of the most selfish things I've ever said. Politicians are selfish by nature. I mean, they're egotistical by nature. They're narcissistic by nature. I don't care if everything Trump said is true and accurate. Let it be for a while. Let it, I mean, if, if you want Republicans to win, if you want Walker to win, and you want some other Republicans in these um, swing states and hotly contested races to win, zip it up. You can think whatever you want to think. You can say behind closed doors whatever you want to say behind closed doors. And I'm not saying that some of what Trump said is not accurate. But it's far better left unsaid. It doesn't serve us trying to win elections and get Herschel Walker into the U.S. Senate by, by those two guys. Well, they really have one. I, I don't think DeSantis said anything derogatorily about Trump. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. I think I follow what you're saying as far as the way to harvest ballots and how that potentially works. But talk about the polling for a minute. Talk about polling, likely voters. If, if, if Laxalt is up to, I mean, the last polls we saw, I mean, even some of the mainstream polls, I mean, they had Laxalt up two or three. I mean, the Republicans had kind of, you know, okay, we're going to win Nevada. We may not win Arizona, but we're going to win Nevada. Um, Laxalt's a good candidate. It's a, um, I mean, he's a reputable brand in that state. Got a lot of, there, there are a lot of, he, he's enough of Trump and, and enough of the establishment. I mean, he's kind of, um, he's a little bit like DeSantis. I mean, he's not as good as DeSantis. And, I mean, Nevada's not as noteworthy a state as Florida is. But, but Laxalt was up two, three. I mean, I saw him up four. But, but those are some of the Republican polls. But, but those polls are, are taken by what? Likely voters. So, so you, let's, just, let's do some math for a second. So in Nevada, there's been slightly less than a million votes counted, roughly a million votes. Laxalt has 450,000. That's 49% of the vote. Um, Cortez Masto has 441,000. That's 48% of the vote. So Laxalt is underperforming by about two percentage points. He's up one. It'll be closer. So let's say he wins by one half of one percentage point. The poll had him up two. Two percent of a million is 20,000 votes. So if you take 20,000 unlikely voters and turn them into likely voters, that the poll misses so that. So the polls are polling likely voters, but the... the 85% of the polls taken were likely voters. But the typical target for a harvester would follow in the unlikely Sure. So I mean, if, if, I if a voter has voted, I mean, these folks make it a science. People need to understand this. Politics is a science. I mean, it's not yelling and screaming. That's what we see. We see television ads and radio ads and, and campaign speeches. There are people behind the scenes. I mean, I know because I lived it. I knew the morning that I voted for myself as lieutenant governor, there was a very, 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 very high probability that I was going to win. I mean, it's not about me. I mean, I'm in a Republican state. I weathered a Republican primary. But, but in some of these swing states, Reb, if you think about it, if one percent is 10,000 votes and 2% is 20,000 votes in a state like Nevada where there's going to be roughly a million votes cast that's pretty easy I mean if you put a team together and an infrastructure in place and you identify 
I mean, if, if you go down a list of likely voters and you see who voted Republican, I mean, he voted three of the last four Republican primaries. She voted three of the last four Democrat primaries. I mean, it's kind of easy to decipher where those people are going to vote. But, but these, these people who don't vote in primaries, they don't vote in generals. They're unlike, they're registered but unlikely voters. That's the ten or 20,000 people you try to find. So, so once again, if, Laxalt, if the poll said Laxalt was up three and he's going to win by a half a percentage point, and I'm just making this up, I don't know that he does. I mean, I was more confident yesterday that Laxalt was going to hold on to Nevada than I am today. I mean, it's, it's 49-48. There's a 9,000 vote difference between he and Cortez Masto, the incumbent. And if the Republicans don't win that one, it doesn't really matter what happens in Georgia because Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris becomes the, the tiebreaker again. We're back to where we were, even if Walker wins in, um, in Georgia. So the, the, here's the point I'm making. If you turn 20 unlikely voters into ballot-harvested votes, you lose. It's that, I mean, it, it's, it's that, that's what these gurus behind the scenes are doing. That's what the Center for Tech and Civic Life did. They, they built an infrastructure in some of these swing states that identified people that have historically not voted in elections, and they rung the bell. Once again, knock on the door. I mean, it, 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 if you've got 100 people out in the field doing this work, and they've got to get 100 people, you see what I'm saying? you got to knock on 100 doors today. I mean, when I ran a campaign, you had volunteers, and you had paid staff, and you're like, hey, how many doors did we knock on today? 305. How many said they're voting for us? 102. How many said they weren't? 75. How many were, were honestly undecided? Well, I mean, there was one guy that said he's not voting for you. No, there's one guy that said he was voting for you, but he had a Democrat sticker. I mean, in other words, if, I, if a college girl goes to a door on behalf of a campaign and, and, and a man answers the door, he doesn't want to hurt the girl's feelings. I mean, he's got a Barack Obama sign in his yard and bumper sticker on his car, but he says, yeah, I'll vote for your guy. He ain't voting for you. Forget that. But, but you got to be savvy enough to do the math and science. So, so when Cahaley says that Laxalt is up two per his poll and he loses by one, how did he miss it three percentage points? That's 30,000 votes. He missed it by the unlikely voter that the ballot harvesters turned into a likely voter. I'm convinced that that's what the Republicans must do. It, it, you, get out the vote's a big deal. But now it's about distributing ballots finding out who the likely suspects are, knocking on their door, and scare Miss Smith to death about the Democrats trying to turn boys into girls and girls into boys. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, I think you've hit on something there, Ken. Uh, that, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense, uh, what you're talking about there, about ballot harvesting. and uh, But I've always been concerned about when the – suitcases or briefcases full of uh, extra ballots were going to come out and slip in there. And the longer that uh, we wait to get a final count, the more likely something like that is to happen. And uh, it's a, it's a kind of a scary time that we would come down to something like that. But I was listening to some of the pundits yesterday and uh, even McCarthy, and they were talking about what they were going to do and what they, they were going to prosecute so-and-so and investigate that. Well, I want to know what they're going to do to uh, cramp some of these regulations that uh, that uh, the, the uh, Democrats have put on the economy just to make sure that they slow it down the maximum amount. 
and how what they're going to do to increase the production of fossil fuels because that's an important key to limiting inflation as much as uh, not putting more money in the system. You've got to produce something, and fossil fuels is something that people want, people need, and uh, we've got to figure out how to get around all these uh, presidential orders to uh, increase our fossil fuel production. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937 is our number. So if you take 10,000, let's hypothetically say that, um, I mean, right now, and I'm using Nevada as a, an example because we don't know who's going to win Nevada. I mean, right now, Laxalt's up by 10,000, 9,000 votes. I think it gets closer than that. He's got 49% of the vote, 48% for Cortez Masto, uh, 1.2%, none of the candidates, and then you got a, um, you know, no party preference, 0.8%. But there's always throwaway. Uh, Libertarian got... 5,495 votes, 0.6. And this is as of uh, 11.30 their time. So 11.30 last night in Nevada. This is the latest update. There may have been another um, ballot drop. I don't know. Uh, they're, they're taking a long time to count ballots. But, but Rev, if you're out there and, and you're, you're, you've got a building infrastructure, I mean, the Democrat Party has done this. They, they know what doors to not knock on. They know not to knock on your door. They know not to knock on my door. But they've identified, you know, let's say 25,000 people in Nevada that have not voted in the last four elections or five elections, but they know they got a ballot mailed. I mean, they know Miss Smith lives on Oak Street. They know Miss Smith hadn't voted in 30 years. Miss Smith's husband died. I don't have any idea, but they're, they're life events or circumstances that you kind of check out of the process. People get frustrated. I don't want to be in that mess anymore. I'm watching Seinfeld. You know, you guys can argue about it on Talk Radio all you can. You know, I'm a live and let live kind of guy. But next thing you know, the knock on the door. And, and it's not, they're, they're, they're not knocking on random doors. They know not to knock on certain doors because that person has voted in three of the last four Republican primaries. They know not to knock on that other door because that person has voted in three of the last four Republican primaries. There's a high probability that that person who's voted in three of the last four Republicans are going to vote for Laxalt. And a high probability the person voted three of the last four Democrat primaries is going to go vote for Cortez Musto. So you're, you're, you're kind of micro-targeting. I mean, you're not broadcasting. You tell me all the time radio is broadcasting. I mean, there are a lot of people who could listen to our show but aren't, right? I mm-hmm. mean, we're out there for everybody in this market. But a lot of people That's choose right. country music or rock and roll or, you know, sports radio. I mean, you know, people have a lot of different interests. But that's broadcasting. No, th- this is micro-targeting. I mean, this is 25, 30,000 people that we know who they are. We know where they live. And we know they got a ballot. And they're highly unlikely to mail that ballot back in unless somebody knocks on that door and explains why it's in their best interest to cast that ballot for candidate X, Y, or Z. And here's the deal. Let's say that the Center for Tech and Civic Life, in the name of making a preserving democracy, let's say the Center for Tech and Civic Life told somebody, I'll give you $10 for every ballot you harvest. But 1,000 ballots is $10,000. That can be real money. And I don't, I don't have any idea how that money's paid. I mean, we talk about suitcases full of money. I don't have any idea how that transaction is made. But that's what the Zuckerberg money did. I mean, all the money was spent in places that allow ballot harvesting, that allowed unsolicited mail-in ballots. In other words, I didn't ask for a ballot, but you mailed me one anyway. So the infrastructure knows that, once again, Miss Smith didn't ask for a ballot, but she's got one. She's not going to fill that ballot out on her own, guys. She's shown that over the last 20 years. 
She doesn't have any interest in voting in these Republican or Democrat primaries. She doesn't have any interest in voting in the general election. So we need to encourage her. And that person knocks on the door and they explain to Ms. Smith, once again, those Republicans will cut your Medicare. They'll cut your Social Security. Or they knock on the door of the young person who's never voted before. Did you know that Republicans want to take women's uh, reproductive rights away? And, and they want to abolish gay marriage. I mean, you, I mean, you see where I'm headed? I mean, it, there's always a message to each. And, and, and these, the, these campaigns, these political parties have more information on you than you can imagine. I mean, they're list after list after list. And I'm telling you, the, 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 the Republicans need to not concentrate on getting out the vote in these 13 states, but rather what 25, 30, 40, 50, 75, 100, depending on how populated the state is. I mean, there's a proportionality here that comes into play. Nevada's not a real big state, so they'll have roughly a million votes. Florida had 7.2 million votes, bigger infrastructure, more people to find. But that's where we are. And I'm telling you, unless the Republicans do this, they ain't winning Pennsylvania ever again. They ain't winning Arizona ever again. It's going to be real hard to win Nevada ever, ever again. Um, and Georgia. Now, now, the Georgia General Assembly did something about it because it's Republican-led. Republican legislature, Republican governor, they've abolished some of the trickery that went on during COVID. What, what they've done is fortify. That was my word yesterday. They fortified the COVID rules, and that's what Democrats want to happen in every state in America. They want us to vote as if we were in a pandemic. Unsolicited mail-in ballots, ballot harvesting. They're not in the vote-getting business, folks. They're in the ballot-distributing and ballot-harvesting business. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. If I were a Democrat ballot harvester in one of these swing states, you know what my, I mean, my sales pitch, so to speak, would be your lot in life is really not your responsibility. Someone took something that you deserved to get. Young people in particular are impressionable. I didn't say they're dumb, but they don't have the experiences that a lot of us middle-aged or older folk do. There's a reason I go see um, a couple of 80-year-old friends I have when my life gets a little bit sidetracked. I mean, they've been there, done that. They can offer real-life experiences and, and you know, how they handled a certain situation or circumstance. I told a buddy of mine uh, yesterday, you know, when my life gets a little bit wiggly, I always find myself in a certain place with a certain person or two or three because I know they're going to give me real good advice. Young people don't have those events and experiences to lean on, that they're very impressionable. Once again, I think they're as smart as I've ever thought about being. But when you look at the subsets of groups that, what I call the demos, you know, we, we know who kind of sort of votes Republican. We know who kind of sort of votes Democrat. But that message resonates with a lot of young people. You know, the world's not fair. You're lot in life. I mean, you don't have as much as they have. You're not as successful as they've been. That's really not your fault. Someone took advantage of a system that allowed for them to take something that rightfully belongs to you. I mean, that, that is a, that's a compelling message. And I think if you knock on young people's doors and say that, they're like, yeah, you're right. I mean, who doesn't like shirking responsibility, right? I mean, who doesn't like not being held accountable? I mean, but, you know, all of my neighbors are doing better than I am. Surely it can't be because I don't work as hard as they do. I'm not as diligent or prepared or, or committed as they are. I mean, there's got to be something out there giving them an advantage and not me. And I think that's what the Democrats have done. And they've done an amazing job of it. And, and I don't think it's cheating. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the election was stolen. It's cheating. No, in these 13 states, it is perfectly legal to mail a ballot to someone who didn't ask for it and to go figure out a way to harvest that ballot. I mean, it's not illegal. So, you know, if we, if we, if, if the federal government under Republican leadership is not going to say states can't do this, then a state that has a Democrat governor 
and a Democrat majority, they're going to do very creative things because Democrats have found out that the more people that participate, the more likely it is that they win. If an informed electorate vote, the Republican wins 55-45. If if a misinformed or disinformed public vote, the Democrat wins probably 60-40 because there's so many people out there that have no interest in American politics. It goes back to the civic exam. You know, we, we've had that debate on this show before. Should someone be required to show a certain understanding of American government civics before they're allowed to cast a ballot? I mean, I'm supportive of that, but I understand that's pie in the sky. We'll never get to a place because it's one man, one vote. I mean, everybody has a right to cast a ballot. I get that. But I think the country is better governed when we have people who honestly know what they're voting for and on behalf of without some, I mean, it's going to be always influenced by media and I guess to some degree, Rev, we influence uh, a, a universe of people into thinking something is um, more believable than than something else. But uh, but yeah, I mean that, that's what happened, and it's still happening. That's why we don't have clarity on Nevada. That's why we don't have clarity on um, in Arizona. That's why Oz lost to Fetterman by four percent. I mean, imagine that a guy with a stroke. The two things a member of the U.S. Senate needs to do is talk and listen. Pennsylvania elected a guy that can't talk nor listen. He may be rehabilitated. I mean, he may recover fully, and I hope he does. I mean, I don't wish any harm on a fellow human being. But the truth is, not only did he win, he won by four percentage points. Wow. Why? Scratch your head. Mm -hmm. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937, our number. We talked a good bit um, after the election. The underperformance of the Republicans, uh, some of the pollsters missing, some of the numbers, did they turn, um, you know, did they turn registered voters into likely voters? I mean, I'm making that argument this morning, but there's another story here that I think is uh, e- even more macro than, you know, the, the Democrats are, I guess the title of the first hour of the show was the Democrats are not in the voting business, but rather the ballot business, distributing ballots and harvesting those ballots in support of said candidate. They built infrastructures. I think Zuckerberg paid for a lot of that infrastructure. Georgia addressed it. Pennsylvania, Arizona did not. And you're but, not saying any of this activity is illegal. I don't have any idea. No, no, it's not against the um, state legislation. No, there's legislature that allows this to be um, kind of normalized. I mean, maybe this is the way. I mean, Democrats know that the more unregistered voters, the more people that don't know what they're voting on behalf of, I mean, that, that's historically accurate. I was thinking about Jeff the other day. Uh, you know, Jeff argued that we're not divided. You know, there are the Republicans, excuse me, the Democrats win the the, the majority of votes every day. Mm-hmm. I, I went back and looked. Um, I mean, I thought this would be interesting. Every state had an election. I mean, we didn't have a presidential election, but every state had an election. And um, well, let me get my numbers here straight. Oh, I don't want to misspeak. All right, here we go. Um, this was yesterday. 44,272,748 had cast ballots for Democrats. 50,131,336 had casted ballots for Republicans. So you mean the national popular vote? Yeah, 46% oh. of the vote is Democrat. 52% of the vote is Republican. You don't say. Um, but, but, you know, that's cherry-picking numbers. <laughs> uh, presidential elections, that's about 100 million people voting, roughly, give or take, 100 million. We had, what, 160 million-ish, 150 million-ish in the uh, presidential election. Well, 75 and 81 is 156 million. So we had about 56 million more vote in the presidential election. But I think it proves that if we ran, you know, um, presidential campaigns across the country in relation to the popular vote, 
Uh, the Republican may still get more votes than the Democrat, but we don't do that. We have an electoral college, and campaigns build their you know strategy around why would a why would a Republican spend money on television in California? I mean, there's no reason. Why would he go to New York? No reason. Why would a Democrat go to South Carolina and waste a lot of money? I mean, we saw that in uh, the 2020 election when some polls said Jamie Harris had a chance to beat Lindsey Graham, and he got beat by what 11 points, 10 or 11 points. Um, so yeah, 50. 52% of the vote in the midterm is Republican, about 47. It's actually about 53% is um is Republican, and about 47% is Democrat. So there is an equally divided nation, despite what some folks try to say. I mean, that's cherry-picking data, and I'm cherry-picking. But, but his cherry-picking and my cherry-picking kind of offset one another. We are a pretty equally divided nation uh, voting for Republicans and Democrats. But here's what's happening in the macro. Uh, forget ballot harvesting, forget, you know, by the Democrats not been to the voting business, but rather the ballot gathering business. Let's go to this incompatibility. You know, the nation is equally divided. One half of this country is not compatible with the other. They think um, that kids should be allowed to have a sex change operation in the fifth grade. We don't think a woman should be allowed to have an abortion after the 13th week. I mean, there are distinctive differences and what these political parties believe about their their worldview, their political philosophy, what they like government to do or not. But here's what's happening right before our very eyes. I went back and looked last night. Um, in the last 25 years, Texas has gained eight seats. It's redder than it's ever been. Florida has gained five seats. We found out this past Tuesday it's redder than it's ever been. South Carolina's gained one seat. Montana has gained one seat. Idaho, for God's sake, has gained one seat. New York has lost five. Pennsylvania's lost four. Illinois lost three. When I think of liberal policy, I think of California, New York, and Illinois. I mean, that's the three states that come to my mind that matter. I mean, Massachusetts is liberal. You know, Delaware's liberal. But, I mean, they're, they're small states. Illinois is a big state. Got a big uh, metropolitan area, um, Chicago. So, it's that's a big deal. So, um, Illinois has lost three Electoral votes in the last 25 years. Pennsylvania's lost four. New York's lost five. California, since we began as a nation, has never lost an electoral vote until this past census. They lost one. So um, where, where are they going? Well, Texas has added 311,000 people in the last two years. That's pretty staggering. Florida's added about 211,000 people in the last two years. South Carolina has, averaged, or has added about 112,000 people. In the last two years, North Carolina, 93, um, South Carolina had 60,000 in 2021. So there's been this mass. My, the point I'm trying to make is the incompatibility is forcing people to move other places. They're leaving California. They're leaving New York. They're leaving Pennsylvania. They're leaving Illinois. Why are they leaving? I don't have any idea. I mean, I could speculate, say liberal government, high taxes, or I could say if I were a Democrat, I'd say warmer weather, you know, better climate. I mean, there's a reason people don't like living in Pennsylvania, shoveling snow, but would rather stay in. in New York. But we're we're compart. Excuse me, we're siloing ourselves. I mean, it's it's almost like remember this argument I had several years back that freaked a lot of you out when I said, you know, that a hundred years from now there won't be a United States of America. And it, it'll be similar to Europe. I mean, we we will have had our run. It'll be a you know a a, a representative republic that lasted three hundred years thereabout, which is a kind of a long time in the grand scheme of things when it comes to self government. Um. But we're almost doing it now. We're almost dividing ourselves along party lines now. 
why is South Carolina redder than it's ever been? Because the, the Northerners move into Horry County and along the Grand Strand, not just Horry County, but Georgetown County and Beaufort County and, and Charleston County, they're bringing conservative tendencies with them. When, 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 when 60,000 people leave New York in a year and they move to the Carolinas, the Carolinas becomes more conservative. There was always a concern that South Carolinians and Floridians had about bringing those liberal ideas and liberal philosophy down here. Well, it's obvious they didn't. I mean, it's obvious. Horry County is this red. I mean, Horry County is in one of the reddest states in America and one of the reddest counties in the red state. So, so the people that moved to the coast of South Carolina didn't bring a lot of liberal thought with them. I mean, they've kind of, they, they go along and get along now. They're, they're not quite as, here's the word, you ready? They're not quite as churchy as historic and, and, and legacy South Carolinians are, but they're every bit as conservative. So, so when you look at Horry County and you see how well Henry McMaster did, and we're talking about Marlboro County turning a little redder. Uh, some of the um, rural areas in South Carolina have gotten much more red than they've historically been. So, so the point I try to make Wednesday after the election, um, the red states are redder. The blue states are bluer. The purple states are equally blue. I mean, equally purple. We've still got Pennsylvania. We've still got um, Wisconsin. We've still got uh, Arizona. We've still got Nevada. I mean, Florida's not a swing state anymore. Ohio's, Ohio's not a swing state. But the reason Florida's redder than it's ever been is 211,000 people in two years leaving New York, leaving Illinois, leaving Pennsylvania, moving to Florida, and they're not voting for Democrats. So the concern we had about coming down here messing up conservative politics is actually reinforcing or, or, or solidifying, you know, the Republican state that is South Carolina, the Republican state that is Florida. Now, now Atlanta's the unique example of a, a, a big African-American population in one of the ma- country's major, not just the South, one of America's major metropolitan areas. Uh, what is Atlanta in the radio market? Top 10? Yep. Uh, it's a top 10 radio market, so it's a big, big um, gathering of folk so to speak, and they have a heavy, heavy African-American population or a big African-American population that votes overwhelmingly for the Democrat. I mean, it would be similar in Georgia if it were not for Atlanta. So, so when I say that, you know, eventually we'll, we'll divide, I mean, eventually, you know, somebody will fire a shot, the, the shot heard round the world, so to speak, and, um, and one group goes on one side of the fence and the other goes on the other side, uh, that we're kind of doing that now. And it's going to be to the to the Republicans' advantage. I mean, imagine battling over the House of Representatives, and New York has five fewer delegates or electoral votes, and Pennsylvania has four fewer, and Illinois has three fewer, Texas has eight more, Florida has eight more, South Carolina has one more. We miss getting a second seat by about 33,000, 35,000 citizens. I mean, had South Carolina grown by another 35,000, might be 40,000, they would have not gotten just one additional House seat, but rather two additional House seats. And um, and that makes it, you know, even so South Carolina becomes a, I mean, it had six electoral votes. Now it's got seven. It'll eventually have eight, maybe even nine. Um, Florida got, what, 26-ish? I'm making this up. I don't know. How many, how many is Florida? How many electoral votes does Florida have? But um, but they've added five in the last 25 years. Texas has averaged, or has added eight in the last 25 years. So, when New York continues to lose population, yeah, it becomes more liberal because the, the conservative-minded people are moving from New York. The conservative-minded people are moving from Illinois. But when that when that number reaches a certain point— 29 in Florida. Okay, 29 in Florida. When that number reaches a certain point, you know, we transition or transfer an electoral college vote from one category to the other. 
and the Republicans have a bigger advantage. I mean, is America, I mean, is Republican, is, are the Republicans more likely or less likely to gain control of the House if South Carolina has six or eight electoral votes? I mean, it's much more likely to have eight. Uh, it's much more likely to be redder with eight. And um, so I think, you know, and this is a macro, but I mean, this is a, that's kind of the long play. I mean, we're buying a stock today, hoping it to be worth more, not tomorrow, the next day, but rather 20 or 25 or 30 years um, down the road. So that's kind of the macro argument. Um, another issue I want to touch on this morning, and I read something, might have been in Breitbart, Federalist, might have been the Federalist, um, about doing away with the January 6th commission. There was a, um, an article about the, uh, the reporter saying that the first thing we need to do is, uh, you know, abandon the January. No, keep the January 6th commission. Appoint a new chair. Jim Jordan needs to be chair of the January 6th commission. Let whomever the minority leader is, whether it's Pelosi or let her appoint her minority membership and let's, let's call Pelosi to testify. I mean, she's in charge of security at the Capitol. She's never been asked, why did we have a security breakdown at the Capitol? So, so let's keep the January 6th commission in place. Let's legitimize it by allowing the minority member to appoint whomever she decides or he decides. I don't know if Pelosi will be the minority leader or not, but whoever that minority leader. And here's my latest projection. The Republicans will have control of the House by about 9 to 11 votes, probably more likely 9 than 11, but we could say 10. But they'll have a 10-vote advantage in the House of Representatives. That's not enough to really get aggressive in policy and agenda. And you've always got the, the president with the veto pen that'll um, he'll squelch any policy agenda or item that the, um, the Republicans get through. But they can investigate. I mean, we can continue. So I would not in any way, shape, or form do away with the January 6th commission I would re I mean I would reorganize. I'd say, hey, since we've had a change in leadership, we're going to continue this investigation because we think it's warranted. We think the American public deserved to know what happened on January 6th. So Jim Jordan is now the chairman because the Republicans are in the majority. And Nancy Pelosi, you have every right to decide your minority membership. Who do you want to be on this committee? We know it can't be Cheney because she got whooped. We know it can't be Kinzinger. So so all of a sudden you've got Jim Jordan chair the committee. You've, you've got some um, some very vocal America First candidates sitting on the committee. So let's please not abolish this committee. Let's continue the committee, and let's have a thorough and full investigation well, like about what happened on January 6th. Do we uh, – and then once again, I think we can be uh, – you know, there, there's a little bit of me that says no. Put every Republican on there. But you can't find – and there's what the Republicans do, and this is what happened yesterday with Trump and DeSantis – the, the Republicans, the Democrats disagree on policy. I mean, there, there's some passionate disagreements within some of the moderate voices in the Democrat Party. We don't hear much from them. They don't make the news, but there's still some moderates out there. But when it comes time to vote, they're going to vote for the, for the Democrat agenda. The Republicans, this conundrum we find ourselves in, I mean, they're, they're so committed against one another that they'll vote like that. The Democrats yell and scream and argue and complain, but when they walk out of that room after caucusing, they vote with the home team. Now, Manchin held up some things, Cinema held up some things, but they eventually got to a compromise, and a Democrat agenda was advanced as a result of, and the Republicans just simply can't get all those cats herded good enough to, um, you know, make a mark, uh, create policy or legislation that they believe is in the best interest of the American people. So um, so keep the January 6th commission in place, appoint Jim Jordan as the chairman, subpoena Nancy Pelosi, and ask her, ma'am, you are in charge, or you were in charge on that day of um, capital security. Why did we have such little security? 
did President Trump offer the National Guard? Th- and those if so, sorts of did questions. you decline sure. that? Sure. Oh, you know, I think, I think any, and why? any fair-minded Democrat would agree. Now, some of the Democrats aren't fair-minded. Some of the Republicans aren't fair-minded. But any fair-minded Democrat would have to accept that that is a reasonable question to ask Speaker Pelosi. You are in charge of capital security. What do you believe happened? I mean, how did we have this? I mean, you've called it an insurrection. Why were we not prepared for, for, for something like this? And I'm thinking about who needs to be on the committee. That'd be interesting. I mean, there's a um, uh, Jim Jordan needs to chair the committee. No question mm-hmm. about it. Do we have a call? Yes. Okay, let's go there. Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe. Yeah, I agree. We uh, we need to keep that going and uh, let the Democrats put on who they want. You know, the Democrats had 222 and Republicans had 212. So if the Republicans have 228, which is a 10-seat majority, that's a bigger majority than the Democrats had, and they ran through all of this. And when they subpoena people, and they refuse to come. They need to have them locked up, just like the Democrats did. Not only Pelosi needs to uh, testify, but Adam Schiff needs to testify. Uh, Kamala Harris needs to testify because she was out in that big brouhaha in front of the White House in 2020 when they had to put Trump in a bunker because of the riots that were going on. So, yeah, we need to keep this uh, thing going. But you see the knives are already coming out for DeSantis. They're trying to... DeSantis hadn't said anything about Trump. And they're egging them on, trying to get them to fight with each other. I don't think DeSantis is going to buy into this. But, you know, we need to keep going. The other thing you talked about, I told you yesterday, they, in Georgia... They put the cutoff for the uh, runoff election registration at the day before the general election, so that'll help a lot more. But I saw where Mike Lee won by 14 points, and Romney didn't even throw his support behind him. So we'll see if Romney gets reelected and whether or not Mike Lee supports him in 24, I think, when he's up for reelection. But I'm imagine he'll probably try to run for president again good luck with that thank you joe appreciate it i mean to me the only two legitimate candidates for president in today's current climate is DeSantis and trump i mean those are the only two candidates that will get a significant amount of support i mean pence will get two or three percent four percent nikki haley could get two or three or four or five percent but but two of 66 to 75 percent of the republican electorate will vote for Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. Now, who gets the most votes? I have no idea. But here's what's happening, and I think we're being a bit gullible here. The media is trying to pitch the story that McConnell and Ryan are working to sabotage or work to sabotage the midterms, and DeSantis was complicit. I mean, he's currying favor with Ryan. Nobody in the GOP should care what Paul Ryan says. I mean, we have to with McConnell. I mean, I wish McConnell were replaced. I mean, I wish Rick Scott would run for majority, I mean, yeah, if they win, majority leader, if not minority leader. We need a change of leadership because McConnell absolutely squandered opportunities to win in Arizona, to be uh, better positioned in Nevada. I don't know that we got enough money to win in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's almost like if I'm a Republican and I'm making strategic plans about where to, you know, where to allocate resources, 
I ain't spending a lot of money in, in Pennsylvania. I just think they have the system down to a, to, I mean, there was no poll that had Oz five points behind. I mean, Dr. Oz lost to a man who had a stroke by nearly five percentage points. I don't know who can run in Pennsylvania and win. I mean, I just don't. I think they've got this ballot, um, this unsolicited mail-in ballot plan, this ballot harvesting, this knocking on doors, they're just passing money around. I mean, I think, I think Pennsylvania, I mean, we've always, I mean, there's story after story after story about Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, you know, the districts in Philadelphia. I mean, that's just, I mean, I, I, I didn't start keeping up with politics until I was 40, but, but I went and read back. I mean, after I became somewhat of a junkie, I went back and read, you know, in days gone by. Philadelphia is a little bit like Chicago. I mean, you know, the, the votes turn out how they need the votes to turn out. Uh, and it's almost like they wait until they know how many they need and then boxes in Chicago report or boxes in Philadelphia uh, report. But I think there's a chance in Arizona to get some reform. I think there's a chance, especially if Carrie Lake were to win the governorship. I think in Nevada, there's a chance if Laxalt wins. I mean, Nevada's a swing state, but it doesn't have a Philadelphia in it. I mean, it doesn't have a Maricopa County. And it's got Clark County, but I don't think Clark County is littered with corruption like Maricopa and, and the city of Philadelphia. That That's where I think the majority of shenanigans take place. And I think most Democrats know that. They just kind of accept it. I don't think any Alabama Crimson Tide fan believes they play by every rule. But you like winning. You like playing for the national championship. I mean, you, you're a person of integrity and virtue, but you're an Alabama Crimson Tide fan. I, I just think you settle that internally. Um, I know Saban does things that most coaches aren't going to do. I know Alabama football does things that a lot of other programs are too uncomfortable to do. Uh, they're fully committed. Nobody can deny that. I mean, they're 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 a, a tremendously run football program. But I think Alabama fans probably suspect that there's been some things that worked to their advantage that weren't by the book, so to speak. And I think Democrats absolutely are comfortable, by and large, because they think they're doing God's work. I mean, they think they're saving the country. They think those people whose lot in life is really uh, didn't work out is not their responsibility, but rather someone taking their, uh, you know, the, their advantage or their prosperity away from them. And I think I think they drink their own Kool Aid. I mean, I do. I think I think the majority of liberals believe that their work is good work. That they're indeed. I mean, we think they're tyrannical do-gooders, but they believe sincerely from the bottom of their heart that you know Republicans are evil, and and small government allows people to too many people to fall through the cracks, and and they've got to do something about that. And if they don't, nobody will. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Kind of an intro. I stumbled on an interesting debate that we could have. So, if the Democrats genuinely believe that they're doing God's work, I mean, that they're sincere, that they're motivated, they're inspired, they believe that there's certain people out there who didn't get a fair shake, and it's government's job to level the playing field. It's government job to um to 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 to, to basically create equal out- outcomes. I mean, there are people that believe that. It's kind of the notion of socialism. Can a conservative argue? that they're doing God's work for allowing people to get what they deserve. I mean, that's kind of the mantra of conservatism, right? I mean, it's less government, less intervention, allowing people to live their lives free of intrusion, uh, free of, um, you know, some government regulation or stipulation. I think that's an interesting debate. And I'll tell you, I think there are sincerity on both sides. I believe that there are liberal people every bit as good and decent as I've ever thought about being that, that could defend why they think government should take 50% of a man's income to make the world a better place. I think there are conservatives that, that are equally spirited about a belief that, no, the government has no right to do that. You're not advancing the, the plot of mankind by doing that. You're encouraging 
Um, you're encouraging laziness. You're encouraging people to not take care of themselves. You're encouraging responsibility and accountability. I think there could be a genuine debate. And I think there, I mean, I think people play games. I mean, I think politics by general, by, you know, the best politicians are the ones that can convince you that, you know, their ideas are better than the others. But I do believe, I, I don't know that I've ever heard a debate between a sincere liberal and a sincere conservative about their, um, I don't know, the, the God impact, you know, the spirituality of politics. We talk a lot about spirituality and abortion and, you know, uh, gay marriage and some of these other things, biblical worldview, non-biblical, secular worldview. But, but I, I, you know, that would be very interesting for two very decent people to have a constructive debate about why conservatism is better or why liberalism is, um, is better for the plot of humanity. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington. Good morning, Sam. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Uh, that, that point you just raised, Ken, is is real interesting. I think that's true. Uh, not not all the liberals are bad, and not all the conservatives are good, and vice versa. You, 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 there's some serious subjective issues. Um, I didn't actually call for that. I wanted to hark back. You were talking about having hearings and having uh, Jim Jordan be the chair of the 9-11, I mean, of the January 6th commission. Uh, assuming that the Republicans do continue that commission, I hope what they will do is ask serious questions, not uh, political advertisements disguised as a question, because there's some serious issues involved in there, um, mainly, I think, involved with the, the FBI and, and what, did, what did they do and, and what kind of messages did they send to Pelosi or any, if such a thing happened? Because that's, it's, it's deeper than party, and it, it should be a, a sober, um, inquisitive thing, not a, not a shouting match. That's all I had to say. That's a lot, Sam. Thank and, you. And that's Appreciate kind of that. What we're saying. That, that's exactly it's what been I'm very saying. Partisan, only partisan. But I don't point. know that we have the capacity to do that. Division is incredibly lucrative in America today. I mean, it is. Chaos is unbelievably profitable in America today. We know. I mean, we cast seeds of doubt, right? I mean, I've told my listeners, our listeners, as a family, be suspicious of government. Don't take government at face value. Surely that's creating some degree of suspicion that may or may not be healthy in the political orbit. But it's, it's my opinion. What, what, I've, what I've learned over my time in politics, despite how brilliant I may think I am, and despite how much better I think my idea is in, than yours, I don't have a monopoly on the truth. I don't have a monopoly on sound opinion. I, I, I'm not, if, if I'm that dumb, then I don't need to be in elected office. I mean, I, I said yesterday, and I stand by this comment, the people that need political leadership most are probably the people least able to elect that political leadership. I mean, that, that's just a reality. I'm not, I'm not saying anybody's less worthy as a human being. I would never say that. That would be absurd to say that. But, but I, I, I made a suggestion yesterday, and I said it again this morning, that um, you know, America get about, gets about what it deserves. And I think politics understands the shallow mind of the average American. And they prey upon that shallow mind of the average American. Why does why does the um why am I yelling to the top of my lungs that if you vote Democrat, eight year olds are going to be able to you know enter into sex change operation contracts with medical professionals? I mean, there's some truth to that, but but that that's not every Democrat. I mean, I misrepresented the opinion of every Democrat, but but we I mean we find ourselves always at odds with one another, and you put up your fist, and and damn it, I'm putting mine up. 
Now, I'm not giving any ground, and you probably aren't giving any ground either. And that goes back to the word I used yesterday, the incompatibility of America. I mean, th- th- there are this many people on this side of the fence that are as motivated and believing in what they stand for as the people on the other side of the fence. And how do you say grace over that? I mean, an experiment of self-government, how, how do you get out of that conundrum? I mean, when this crowd believes that they're doing the right thing and this other crowd believes that they're doing the right thing and nobody gives an inch, how do you self-govern? I mean, dictators settle that for others, you know, monarchs and kings. And, but, I mean, we are an experiment in self-government. And we've gotten ourselves in a conundrum, my word again, uh, of, of one side not giving an inch to the other side. And there's about as many on one side as there is on the other. Let's go to the phone. Jason and Marion. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, fellas. Uh, Ken, you were just talking about Pennsylvania a minute ago. And it'd be interesting to see if the – I can't believe Oz lost my five percentage point. But it'd be interesting to see if – during the primaries, if one of those other candidates that were pretty neck and neck with him, but the Trump endorsement, you know, pushed him over, you know, in the primary, but maybe some of those other primary voters didn't, maybe they just stayed home or whatever. But my parents live in Pennsylvania. My dad sent me a picture or a map of the of Pennsylvania, and all of Pennsylvania is red except the three spots, Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh, and Harrisburg. And I'm curious to wonder what the population of the rest of the state is compared to those three counties when you're talking about how there's corruption, which I believe there's all sorts of shenanigans going on in Philadelphia and the surrounding areas, uh, how that would look against the rest of the uh, state. Um, but I also want to uh, make a point about, and I kind of jumped on this Perry Lake bandwagon the past couple of calls, but uh, I want to make a prediction that when she becomes governor, um, she's going to have Arizona um, as red as Florida is the next time the election comes on. I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. You've got you got Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, but you also got Allentown. It's still a, a kind of a, a big union voice in Allentown, um, blue-collar union, kind of a legacy Democrat vote uh, that leans heavily to that side. But I went and looked during the last break. Because um, I don't want to misspeak. I think I said Fetterman won by four and a half, five points. He got 50.9% of the vote, 51. Um, Oz is about 46 and a half. So it is. I mean, it's five points. And that, that's that's staggering to me. And I think Philadelphia is the state that does it better than anybody. I mean, if you buy into my narrative, I mean, if you accept what I'm saying is true, that, that you know, Democrats have forgotten about voter turnout, but rather now distributing as many ballots as they can and, and harvesting those ballots and getting them to be counted. That they're turning, um, that they're turning <sighs> registered voters into likely voters, and the polls are having a hard time. I mean, if, if Kahaley had Oz up one, and you know Rasmussen had Oz up one, RCP had Oz in a dead heat. I mean, the, the RCP aggregate was Pennsylvania's a toss up. I mean, it's a it's a dead heat. Well, Fetterman won by five percentage points. Fetterman is not a generational candidate. I mean, there are some electric candidates that have sizzle. Carrie Lake's that. I mean, there's a reason Lake's mm-hmm. outperforming Blake Masters. She is an electric candidate. Barack Obama was an electric candidate, whether you liked him or not. J.D. Vance is a competent guy, right? I mean, he's got a compelling story. I mean, every candidate has a lane. I mean, mine was good old boy backslapper. I'm the guy next door. All candidates position their campaigns 
to basically accentuate your strong points. You hide away, you know, you kind of run from your, you, you know, I mean, it's, it'd be obvious. I mean, if you're a passing team, what do you do? You pass. I mean, if the defense is struggling against the run, what do you do? You run. I mean, we all play that game in every facet of our lives. We play our boss to some degree. We know what our boss likes and doesn't like. So we try to accentuate the things that he does and, and stay away from the things that he or she um, does not. But, but there was no polling out there that showed Fetterman was going to win by five points. I mean, there wasn't even an outlier. I think I saw Fetterman up two or three. But, but if you turn registered voters into likely voters, the polls are polling likely voters, that, that, that's a submerged vote. I'm using Kahaley's number uh, or, or language. Uh, we're talking about submerged Trump voter, but, but the, the registered voter is getting a knock on his door. Mr. Jones. Yeah, how are you? I'm from the Democrat National Committee. Did you get a ballot mailed to you? I did, but I hadn't voted in 30 years. I don't know why I got that ballot. Mr. Jones, the reason you got that ballot is because we're concerned about your Social Security and Medicare. I mean, if, if the, did you know the Republicans are trying to change your Social Security and Medicare benefit? I didn't. I told you, I don't, I don't, I don't vote. I watch Seinfeld. I mean, I, I don't I have any idea what you're talking about. But Mr. Jones, surely you would be you would, you would not look kindly upon a political party trying to mess around with your Social Security or Medicare. Of course I don't. I don't want anybody messing with that. I paid into that. I mean, that's, that's my right. That's not an entitlement program. We've heard that. Well, Mr. Jones, I'm telling you, the way you can make sure that doesn't happen is let me help you, help you fill this ballot out. Next thing you know, that registered voter who hadn't voted in 20 years is a likely voter. Fetterman goes from 2% to 5% because of the, you know, the poll not picking up the 3% of ballots that are going to be harvested. And Nevada was the best example. Nevada has about a million people voting in the, uh, in the general. I mean, imagine what I mean, one percentage point is 10,000 votes. I mean, Laxalt is up 9,000. I mean, it would be easy to harvest statewide 9,000 votes, wouldn't it? 10,000 votes. I mean, Laxalt was up in most polls three percentage points. He's up nine-tenths of one point this morning. And I think the reason is the Democrats are not in the vote turnout business, but rather the ballot harvesting business. Well, I don't know. Fetterman, he must be a great candidate. I saw an MSNBC host has floated him as a potential presidential candidate. Well, he's forward. authentic. I mean, he's sincere. Oh. You know, he's... Um, Is that what she said? Yeah, but... but Was that Katie Turr? Yeah, Katie Turr. Um, What's wrong with her? <laughs> she's on MSNBC. <laughs> um, she's one of those. We'll just leave yeah. it there. But um, Jason was also asking about Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, and he's right. I mean, I went back and looked at some of the AP exit polling, and um, it's, it's clear. We touched on this yesterday, but we didn't go into detail um, and I don't want to go to boring detail with it today, but about 66% of Americans are called urban or suburban. The Democrat wins that vote about 60-40. 60-40 is a big number when it's 66% of the electorate. In rural America, which makes up about 34% of the vote, um, the Republican wins about 62 to 38. So rural people, rural folk, are voting overwhelmingly in favor of the America First agenda and the Republican Party. But, you know, urbanites and people who live in suburban areas are voting 60-40 in favor of the Democrat. So, yeah, in Philadelphia, in the rural areas of Philadelphia, the Republicans killed it. But they're getting beat 60-40 in Pittsburgh. They, they got beat about 70, ah, about 72-28 in Philadelphia. But that's just the nature of Philadelphia. If you think Philadelphia is going to vote 75% Democrat, it's probably going to be 80. They don't leave much to chance. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, they're probably the best ballot harvesters in the history of mankind in Philadelphia. Take a break back in just a few. The most important apology I think is necessary and needed is Commissioner Rob Manfred from Major League Baseball 
uh, moving the all-star game because the state of Georgia passed Jim Crow 2.0 and we were going to have voter suppression and deny the right to vote would be people, you know, of, oh, uh, yeah, of color and, you know, lack socioeconomic standing and all these other sorts of things. Well, just, we should just send Rob Manfred a kind of a tally at about 3.96 million votes cast uh, and counted in Georgia. That's a 57% turnout in 2018 at 3.9 million that's a 55% turnout. So we had 2 million, excuse me, 2% more turnout after Jim Crow 2.0 got passed and became law of the land. In the most recent, uh, in the 2014 primary, had about 2.6 million people vote. So um, more people voted in a midterm election in Georgia Tuesday than has ever voted in a midterm election in Georgia's history. So I think Major League Baseball owes the Atlanta Braves, the city of Atlanta, the state of Georgia, some of the uh, industries and businesses that were gearing up for an all-star game that was going to generate somewhere around $400 million, I think is what the um, the reciprocating effect of dollars right. was going to be. Or uh, It's just kind of interesting that we've not heard a word out of Major League Baseball. It, it, it's, it's almost like, Rev, in society today, and, and we got to be careful with this, and I'm not pointing a finger at anybody in particular, but there are certain groups of people, certain political stances that are held 100% accountable. If you say something... I mean, you're going to be held accountable for whatever it is you said. Um, there are others who just simply aren't held accountable. They say reckless things, but it fits the media narrative. It's in line with the monolith, that is, the media and academia and the cathedral that I talk a lot about. But we've got to get away from that. And Republicans can't fix that. That There's got to be some independent-thinking Democrats who agree that what Rob Manfred did was, was unexplainable. I mean, it really had no foundation. I'd like a reporter to ask him and get his. Well, I mean, they're not going to do now. that because the reporter believed that Georgia was trying to suppress votes. That goes back to the monolith. I mean, it's hard to find an honest broker in the media today. That they're in, they're in. They think. I mean, they, they want to celebrate Major League Baseball for being symbolic and uh, basically arguing. I mean, there's no proof of this. But Manfred moves the game. Maybe it's just po- political pressure from the White House. I don't have any idea if somebody in the Biden administration called Major League Baseball and said, you know, it would be the right thing to do to move the All-Star game. But the data is empirical. I mean, the data shows that more people voted Tuesday than ever before in a midterm election in Georgia. And I think if the Major League Baseball commissioner were an honest broker, he would call a press conference and say, you know, in retrospect, what we did was not fair to the city of Atlanta, not fair to the state of Georgia, not fair to the businesses and industries that we're counting on, you know, this influx of money and people and tourism. Um, and the, the Major League Baseball didn't know what it was, but it's still a big deal. The All-Star Game still a, a celebration of America's pastime. And his decision still harmed real people. Sure. Real business And owners. if you talk about the big lie, I mean, here's the big lie in, in reality. I mean, it really <laughs> turned up. The, the criticism, I mean, it, that, that, that's what we should be criticizing. Uh, Commissioner Manfred, you bought the big lie. I mean, you were a believer in what the Biden administration said about voter and Stacey Abrams about voter suppression. And I think you owe, for the sake of your credibility, you owe American apology. You owe particularly Georgia, Atlanta, and the baseball fans in that city and baseball fans around the world. I mean, you move, that's a big deal to move an all-star game. But he believed in the big lie. So I think we've got to have Democrats that agree that Rob Manford believed in the big lie and he needlessly moved the All-Star game because it satisfied the, the liberal bias in the media and academia. And that's probably what Manfred wanted to do. He wanted to gain favor with the media. He wants Major League Baseball to be properly reported on, or favorably, not properly, favorably reported on, and he'll do, do whatever it takes. He'll lie, cheat, and steal. So I mean, if we talk about who believes in the big lie or not, 
the biggest lie this week was Georgia was trying to suppress votes and moving the All-Star game. I mean, if, if I were an owner and had a conservative bias about me, I would have a press conference this morning demanding that the commissioner of Major League Baseball either apologize or resign, one or the other. But but that you know you, you take a chance if you're conservative and you're out that spo- or that outspoken. Uh, the liberal bias in the media and academia, you kind of get a free pass. And, and we've got to get to a place where people are treated equally when it comes to the decisions they make based on what sort of politics they may or may not believe in. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We'll be back in just a few minutes with our number. Three. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. You know, the one thing I underestimated, and I've said this, and I'm, I'm, I'm as clear as I can be now. When I look at the um, the Oz vote, the Fetterman vote, uh, when you look at the Herschel vote and the Warnock vote, young people voted and were voting for a woman's right to choose. I mean, they, you know, I never imagined that abortion would be that big a deal in uh, a national election. And I'm talking, you know, when you run for the U.S. Senate, you're talking about a national I mean, the Georgia election is a national election. The Arizona is a national election. The Pennsylvania is a national election because the nation has an interest in who's going to control the Senate and these swing states, swing um, kind of swing the power from one party to another. But when you break down the data, and I've done about, I mean, I've looked at six or eight different um, exit polling analysis, and um, the AP has one with 115,000 uh, respondents. And, I mean, when you, when you really break it down, young people voted – far more in the midterm than they ever have. And young people say that they were voting because Roe v. Wade was overturned. I never, ever imagined that that would be the case. Uh, Representative Philip Lowe and Senator Mike Rickenball with us. Um, guys, we talked about the economy and inflation. I mean, we were optimistic about what we thought would happen. And, and I want to make sure people understand, winning control of the House isn't a bad night. Uh, the Senate's still a toss-up. I mean, it looks like Laxalt will hold on in Nevada. It doesn't look to me like Masters can catch um, the astronaut in Arizona, and then it comes down to Georgia, and Georgia will be a runoff. Um, there will be enormous amounts of money invested. There will be party operatives from here to kingdom come that, you know, go to Georgia. I'm going the weekend after Thanksgiving. I mean, I'm going Friday after You're we going. get off the air, not Thanksgiving weekend, but the following weekend to do what I can to help the greatest college football player I've ever seen <laughs> get elected to the U.S. Senate. But, um, but, but, Guys, I want to get your take on this. You have been very candid about the Republican struggle in coming to a, a resolution on the state having the authority now to address the, the abortion law in America. Are, are we pursuing bad policy? Are we doing a bad job explaining ourselves? I mean, why did we get whooped up on so bad in the swing states by young voters who apparently disagree and, and find the position the Republicans have taken to not be... Um, where they're politically aligned. Mike, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Yeah, I don't believe it's necessarily bad policy. I mean, I we've talked before on air that for 50 years almost, um, Roe v. Wade has been killing the unborn and how all four of us in this room you know, believe it was obviously the right, without question, the right thing to do to protect the unborn. To have this generation, a younger generation, to me, not just focus on abortion, is telling it's the cultural battle we're in ken we elected our first openly transgender candidate up in minnesota we talk about gender reassignment it is not uncommon everybody knows i'm a i'm a big gamecock fan all right i like an underdog i take my whoopings every weekend <laughs> most of them and uh i'm a gamecock fan but you know we got a daughter who graduated from there we got a son who's there now 
And it is not uncommon that the student to their left or to their right will say, I prefer the pronoun they, or I am non-binary. And it's a, it is a common experience now to redefine who we are as Americans. And, and I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I don't believe this was an election that didn't go our, our way because we had bad policy or we had bad candidates. Did we have some flawed candidates? Sure. You know, did Trump meddle in areas where it was really frowned upon? You know, without question. I mean, the data shows that. But I believe ultimately it's a function that as a culture, our country is losing its way and our young people are subject to a cultural battle and they're losing and they don't even realize it. Philip? Ken, you may remember when the abortion discussion came up, I told you, I said, there's a, a political punishment that's going to come out of this. I said, we're people of faith. And South Carolina is a conservative state. It didn't affect us that much. But the poll said that women under the age of 45, of course, to 18 that could vote, were far in the pro-abortion type of, of, a, of a feeling. And, and they were going to reflect that. And I think the polls suggested that it could be as much as a 15% turnaround from the Republicans. Now, you take, you take the... the the strong wind we had behind our back over the uh, the economy and inflation and all those things, we were focused on that. But there was a group of people who are less monetarily interested and more interested in wokeism and all the other stuff, and they're coming out of school. But the 18 to 44 crowd really considered abortion, the females considered abortion a, a, an issue. Then combine that with somebody promising to throw 10 thousand dollars of loan forgiveness at people then that crowd just abandoned us mike there's certain policies i believe in there's certain principles i stand upon that's kind of a a, a, i'm getting spiritual here for a second with you but but i'm 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 more than willing to consider disagreements when it relates to policy i'm not giving up my principles and my principle says that life begins at conception and you have a political duty now to protect life however unpopular that may be how do we, how do we weave ourselves through that dilemma? Um, Philip's talking about yeah, and, and Philip called that. I mean, he and I spoke right after the vote. He said, "Hey, we're it's gonna we're gonna have a hard time, you know, at the state house and the Republicans disagreeing with one another." Ray Ben says, "Live of the mother." I mean, we know the the traditional debate, but but the point I'm trying to make is the budget and investing in education. I mean, th- those are policy disagreements and policy issues. And if the three of us started talking about education, we'd probably come from a little different perspective. But I think in a matter of principle, you, you got to be willing to put your political future at risk if you sincerely believe in that in the, in the core of your being. Yeah. And I think the fix to this, Ken, isn't just going to be great speeches at the well in the Senate or in the House by either me or Philip or Jay. It's not going to be a conference committee. It's not going to be, do we nuance the policy? Um, it wasn't but a couple months ago that several pastors in Florence were interviewed by the morning news about how they felt about Roe v. Wade. And to have a good number of those pastors say, you know, I'm personally pro-life, but I do believe that it should be a woman's right to choose. That's a spiritual battle with spiritual consequences. And prayer is going to have to take a hold of this fight and change people's hearts. Pastors, Pastors in Florence, South Carolina, equivocating and saying, well, I got to tell you, the Bible doesn't exclusively say abortion's wrong. They're pandering to the power brokers of the Democratic Party. And some of them even believe it. 
But not only is it bad policy, it's destroying the generation. And candidly speaking, the the embarrassment part of it is that several of those pastors were black. There's more abortions in the black community than in any other community, yet these pastors are advocating for the almost genocide of an entire generation of black babies, black and white and brown babies. But we've got to get to the spiritual aspect here that there's a battle where even the clergy are advocating for this. Philip, in, in the total vote, AP, so there's 115,000 sample, probably as detailed as any I've seen, 47% of the electorate were, were men. Uh, the Republicans won that about 55 to 45. They were about, somewhere they're about. So I think it's 54 to 44. That uh, 2% didn't want to respond. Um, women, 52% of the electorate were women, and the Democrat won the the, the female vote about 51-46. I mean, that, that's about a five-point spread. Men advantage, five-point spread. Women, this is an interesting number, and I want to get your take on this. Unmarried females and single moms, 93% voted for the Democrats. I mean, is that about abortion? Or, or uh, to, to Mike's point, have... Have young females been coerced into believing that Republicans are unreasonable when it comes to legislating abortion? You know, a large percentage have grown dependent on the government. And and so they're going to vote for the party that gives them something. I mean, they're just balled off like that. Um, so, I, you know, we lose votes there. But listen, my daughter went, is going to Carolina right now. She came back. She goes, Dad, tell me why I shouldn't vote for Cunningham. And I went, What? I mean, it's like, you know, well, all right, pack I had your bags. Both my boys have to be the same thing. Both yeah. my two kids. That's it. Mine too. Both yeah, of mine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so she's been at college four years now, and she's questioned all the things that I brought up. So all the people around her and the university, the professors up there, have made a dent in her head, and she's leaking fluid somewhere, you know? I mean, <laughs> we got to plug that gap. Yeah, 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 and, and so, I, I mean, I, I had a long conversation about it. I don't think that I convinced her. To come back to our side, I think maturity has to bring it there. Um, but the social issues are pulling them away from us, while this physical, fiscal issues, monetary issues, haven't dominated their life yet. They're still in that wonderland time where they're, they're walking around looking at the mushrooms and everything else growing in the forest. So we've got to, they've got to mature, and we can bring them back. But it, this was a dilemma. We knew the whole time that it, of your faith, how you feel about abortion, and the real deal of politics. And politics is about votes. That that particular abortion vote cost us some votes. Is it the right thing to do? Sure it is. And we could afford to do it in South Carolina, but they couldn't do it in swing states. Mike, another takeaway that I've noticed, um, it looks to me like, and I mean, it's not this general, but I'm going to be a bit general in the way I explain it. Um, looking at the data and the analysis, the red states got redder, the blue states got bluer, and the purple states are just as purple as they've ever been. Um, what used to be, I mean, South Carolina was a plus eight or nine state. It's probably now plus 13 or 14 state. Um, for every conservative-minded person that leaves New York and moves to South Carolina, South Carolina becomes a little more conservative. New York becomes a little more liberal. I mean, you've added a conservative soul. You've subtracted a conservative soul. Is, is that a fair analysis from your perspective? I mean, obviously, we, we can make it as complicated as we choose to. But at the end of the day, South Carolina is conservative as it's ever been. California is as liberal as it's ever been. Yeah, and, and I would agree with that. And anecdotally, I certainly see it. I don't have the quantitative numbers behind it. But when I go down to the Grand Strand, I mean, we all can look at the data and say in the last 10 years, from the 2010 to the 2020 census, they had 30% growth. The majority of their growth was influx from the Northeast and the Northeast and the Midwest. 
And the majority of those folks left the Northeast and the Midwest because they were, many of them were tired of the way life is run, the way they shut down society, the way they tried to control your ability to live free in those states. So they moved to the Grand Strand into South Carolina and they bring conservative values with them. I think it's a, a good thing, um, but I do still have concern about our nation overall because we can't forget the Northeast. I mean, they're making policy up there that is bad for our nation and they're trying to redefine what made America great. And Philip, if they've moved here for conservative government, lower <clears throat> taxes, uh, you guys are responsible for making sure we preserve that, uh, that, that sort of life or they had no business moving here to begin with. Yeah, we need to sign on the interstate. Says, you're welcome to South Carolina. Vote like us. <laughs> but, you know, we've got that shift of, of population that's coming down. Maybe a big help in the future, but it's a slow because every 10 years they redistrict everything. And guess what? New York might lose one or maybe two congressional seats. South may pick up one or two, and that's a slow erosion of their power. We're not going to turn... New York conservative. They've taken the conservative people out of it. You'll say, well, we'll never win like that. But, well, we do in a way because we transfer that power, the, the population power, and, and bring conservatives down here. And they're not necessarily our exact brand of conservatism, but they're voting with us. Yeah, and, and to that point, I mean, I did it this morning. In the last 25 years, New York has lost five seats. Pennsylvania's lost four seats. Illinois lost three seats. California, for the first time in its history, lost a seat. How do you goof up California? You know, they got more natural assets and a beautiful climate, uh, everything you need. It's almost a nation within itself. But in that same 25 years, Texas added eight. Florida added five. Montana added one. Idaho uh, added one. There are people leaving these very liberal states, moving to conservative states. So to, to, to Philip's point, and I think I'm saying what you're trying to say, yep. that the long game is South Carolina end up with eight or nine electoral votes. You know, um, Florida ends up with, uh, how many Florida got now? 29? Mm-hmm. They end up with 32 or three electoral votes. And and that you, you kind of, you build a, a distinct advantage within the electoral college of electing presidents and, you know, political power that follows suit. Um, I, I want to, let's, let's take a break. Let's do this, Mike. Let's take a break. I want to come back and find out um, I mean, the, the Republicans underperformed per some of the predictions. The, the polling was not crazy wrong. I mean, Rev and I were talking about that this morning. Some of the pollsters got into predicting business instead of letting their analysis speak for itself. I mean, when you look at the races, the Fetterman race is outside the margin of error. I mean, they got that one wrong. No question about it. The majority of all the others were inside the margin of error. We caught a lot of them toss-ups, but because of the president's approval rating, because of the right track, wrong track, we thought the Republican would overperform. They simply did not. In the country, in South Carolina, it was a good day to be a Republican. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. I lied. I said we're going to talk South Carolina politics. I got so immersed in the conversation with Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, House member uh, Philip Lowe. Uh, Philip, congratulations on another victory. Mike won without getting a vote, didn't he? <laughs> he did. I, I got to learn that technique. <laughs> Ta-da. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's a nice way to get elected. Now, Mike's newly elected. He'll have a, um, ah, we'll make sure he doesn't have a contested race um, next time. <laughs> and we'll, Jay we'll, Jordan won. Yeah, Jay Jordan won. So, a, so, so the, trifecta, the trifecta is still, in, is still in place. I want to go to Georgia because we had kind of an interesting off-air conversation about um, Herschel, you know, and, and, and where he is and some of the, um, some of the analysis of uh, him getting 200,000 votes less than Kemp. Some of the never-Trumpers, I mean, I've got it figured at about 3%. 3% of Republican voters voted for Warnock. 
I mean, to me, that's disgusting, but it is what it is. I mean, there's a vendetta against Trump. Um, Mike, I'll start with you. There are three central figures in this in this Herschel Walker. There's four. First one's Herschel Walker. I mean, he's the candidate. There are three more. Um, Governor Kemp, who got elected by a wide margin. Ron DeSantis, who appears to be the next best thing uh, in Republican politics. And you've still got the 800-pound gorilla. His value may be diminished. I mean, he may have taken it on the chin a little bit, but Trump's still a big, big deal. How does Herschel Walker, I'm asking you to be political guru here for a second, how does Walker navigate the complexities of Kemp, DeSantis, and uh, and Donald Trump? Yeah, I don't think Herschel does navigate it. I think it's out of his control because the ego of those three people, and in particular, let's call it um, what it is, the ego of Donald Trump is only going to be controllable or managed by Donald Trump. Telling Donald or asking Donald, imploring Donald to do something for the greater good is a good way for him to say, I'm not going to do it because you asked me to do it. Almost making it his idea. <laughs> you could have said it any better. Yeah. <laughs> like if we could get him to say, like almost almost appeal to his enormous ego. Like remember in uh, Star Wars, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Princess Leia. And almost needs, help me, Donald Trump. You're our only hope. <laughs> oh, Donald, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Please help us. Imploring to his ego so that he can write in on his stallion and say, I saved the day. Kemp couldn't do it. DeSantis couldn't do it. Tim Scott couldn't do it. Nobody could do it, but I sure did it. At the end of the day, I don't care what it takes. We got to win that seat. And if that means licking Donald Trump's boots right now to get that seat in Georgia, I say we do it. But, Philip, we always knew Trump was complicated in Republican politics. Somebody's I mean, got a big army. I mean, I've argued he doesn't have a base. He has a following, unlike any political figure I've ever seen in my lifetime. But the complicated situation just got more complicated by how well DeSantis did. In Florida, it's almost like we don't have a captain of the team. We've got co-captains of the team. Well, first, you left out the fourth reason. If Herschel Walker, if all of Herschel Walker's children had voted for him, he'd have won. (laughs) Wait, wait, that was wrong. Wow. Oh, now, come on. That's a joke. That's a joke. Too soon? (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know how you pull that. That's a a three-ring circus, and, and they're all kind of vying for power right now. At least two of them are. And I don't. I don't think you get them all on the same stage. I don't, I don't believe you can do it. Um, right. You sent me a poll in a uh, fairly conservative outlet. I mean, it, it's, it's where a lot of hunters and outdoorsmen gather. You sent me a poll. Um, relay that information to our listeners. I found it very interesting. Um, for the first time in his political life, Donald Trump is probably not the most revered figure in the Republican Party. It's Ron DeSantis. It, it was surprising. We all woke up that morning, everybody scratching their head going, well, what happened? And, and I put a poll out early in the morning on this, on this hunting type site. And cause that's a Republican, hardcore red meat Republican sure. guys, mainly, um, and probably white guys that are hunting and fishing, you know, that's probably the, the bulk of it. Um, and I didn't put any political discussion. I said, you know, Trump or DeSantis poll came back 92% DeSantis. Now, we all are mad the morning after something didn't go our way, and, and maybe that changes and calms down, but that was a big shift overnight. You'd have never got that the day before. But, but Mike, we can't win without the Trump crowd. I mean, the Republican Party, I mean, if you believe you can walk away from Donald Trump and Donald Trump demands of his army to not, to just don't do it. I mean, they, they don't want any part of us, don't have any part of them. I mean, we're dead. 
I mean, we're all, I'm dead, you're we're dead, we're, we're done. I mean, we're done. There's no chance in Hades of winning an election if Trump tells his army, look at how they did me again. Let's just not be a part of it. How can, I don't want to say we got to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but, but Trump is a force du jour. He's a political blunt instrument. But we've all of a sudden got a rising star that did something in Florida that most of us think is is remarkable. Um, I'm not asking you how do we how do we work through that, but but how do we keep the Trump vote and diminish the Trump personality? I mean, isn't that kind of what we're trying to do? We're all trying to figure out what is too much Trump and what is not enough Trump. And at days we feel like we don't have enough, and other days we feel like I got too much. I thought well, it was too much yesterday. The the um, True Social is that the mm-hmm. media platform or whatever? I mean, to, to me, that's just that doesn't help any of us when he does that. Is it time to challenge Donald Trump, Mike? I think it's time to challenge the ultimate objectives of true conservative Republicans. Those Trumpers, those uh, I will only be a Donald Trumper and I'll be Trump till till the day I die. I'd hope we'd ask them one simple question: What's the greater good here? Is it that you support Donald Trump? into a loss or is it that we elect conservative Republicans? And if they look at this election Tuesday and they see what happened to Oz, they see where Walker's at, they see where Masters at, they see where Carrie Lee, I mean, some good candidates, some bad candidates, some in between, but they look and if they see that I may be Trump to the core, but Trump right now has a toxicity that in the overall scheme of things doesn't help the greater good Maybe it's time they would recalibrate and say, you know what? I'd prefer Trump. I like his brashness. I like his punch in the mouth kind of approach. But our best chance at achieving that greater good is with DeSantis. It's going to have to be some cerebral thinking to understand that I just can't have it my way and my candidate. We got to look at what's for the greater good. But Philip, I'll play devil's advocate for a second. I'm a Trump voter. I'm a Trumpster. He's my guy. I mean, I've been with him since the beginning and you're asking me to turn that. No way. No way in this world. I did what I was supposed to Tuesday. I voted for the Republicans. 3% of the never-Trumpers decided to vote for the Democrat. That's who you need to be taught. But you see where I'm headed. I mean, yeah. I, mean I, I get it's easy to argue against Trump because he's an easy target. I mean, he always is. He always will be. I mean, if we believe this man is going to change, forget that. I mean, we're going to have to work around who he is some way, somehow. But the Trump voter could say, I voted for 20 candidates that I didn't care much for, that I don't really trust. The 3% never-Trumpers are the reason that Herschel's not a senator that Oz may not be in the Senate, that Blake Masters may or may not lose. Stop lecturing to me. Let's talk to the 3% never-Trumpers who actively endorsed and Liz Cheney. I mean, endorsed, publicly support George Bush, publicly support Mitt Romney, refused to endorse. The, I mean, they've got a legitimate argument as well. No, they're the majority, or for sure they were the majority before this election. It's still two out of three but, right, there's, that believe there's in America term, first. But we lost two parts of, of our base that we couldn't. We lost some females, and we lost the never-Trumpers. But I think where we have to focus in trying to pull them back is where do we gain? And we gain the Latino vote through DeSantis, and that's a that's been a huge growing. It's stronger than African-Americans. I mean, Rickenball brought in a percentage of his uh, African-Americans with him in, in the race with Jordan. And it was a potent percentage that came in. It made a difference. We've got to make a difference, that same difference, hopefully, in some African-Americans. But a lot of these, a lot of the Latinos came here for a better life, for opportunity, for, you know, for a chance to own their own business, make a little money. And I think those folks uh, are, are particularly attracted to us right now because they believe 
that we're not just have giving it out, that we're giving them opportunity. And, and Mike, to that point, I mean, being a minority Republican, um, 12% of the electorate were African-American, 11% were Hispanic. I mean, the, the, the African-American vote went from about 10% to 14 So the Republican did better in African-Americans. The Republican vote went from um, 11% of the vote was Hispanic. The, the Republican only lost at 56-38. So 14% of African-Americans voted Republican. 38% of Hispanics voted Republican. Those are high watermarks. I mean, to Phillips' point, we are building diversity within the party. We're losing young people. We're, we're losing educated females. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, but we're gaining um, African-American vote as well as Hispanic vote. I mean, that's we, we've got to concentrate on – we can't change our position on abortion but so much, Right. I mean, I'm not playing politics with that. I can't tell you guys what to do, but I, I suspect you're not going to give but so much on that. Um, and if the young people are there and we're here, we got to go find votes other places. Right, Philip? I mean, we got, we got to go find votes other places. And, and I think people like Mike are, are, are kind of the, where, where the future lies. Let's go embrace African-Americans. Let, let's embrace Hispanics. Let's convince them that we are the party that offers them a better way forward. Is that a fair debate? Joe, it's not only a fair debate. You know, The reason the, the state GOP and the RNC in, in D.C. called me after my general election is they said, explain how a Republican won your general election with 90% of your vote. You had droves of Democrats not vote for the Democrat that voted for you. So forget the primary and the general. They've never seen 90% in a Senate seat like that. And I told them... It, Pretty clearly, I would not compromise my values, but I listen. So time and time and time again, Sharice and I would be shopping, we'd be at schools, we'd be at the gym, and, and folks would come up to us, black and white, but Democrats. And they said, I've never voted for a Republican before. I know you stand for things I don't necessarily agree with, but I believe in your heart, and I believe in your sincerity, and I believe you're going to do what's right for those of us here in Florence. And I think if we had a candidate at the national level who could stand by his principles, who would stand fast to those principles, but would say, let's look at what makes us better as a country. What are the things we can agree upon? Safe schools, safe streets, good health care, affordable health care by keeping inflation down, more jobs, economic development. Let's pick the four or five things that we want to work on. The other stuff pronouns they them this is okay that's worked that's meant to divide us let's work on what keeps us together i think we're going to find that as desantis has a better chance of doing that than a trump interesting let's go to the phone someone's there jeff in florence good morning jeff hey good morning hey jeff um hey uh just uh i think you just summed it up but uh 2026 uh <laughs> lindsey graham should watch out because i think you you just found his uh primary challenger <laughs> is that an endorsement because you could hurt him worse than you help him Jeff absolutely I, I, uh, I think Philip Lowe will be a great senator so I think Rick and Bob Lowe for Senate but no I, I would absolutely vote for uh, Rick and Bob over Lindsey Graham or any Democrat on the ticket uh, very impressive guy um, uh, I've, I've done business with his uh, company uh, very honorable um, good representative um, we don't agree on things uh, on on some things, but he is uh, he is what he what he says he is, and uh, he's I don't think he's a flip flopper. Changes or blows with the wind. So uh, I, I do hope you run. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about um, just a couple minutes ago. You guys are talking about how 
you know, you've got to have this core belief about abortion and you've got to stand by your convictions and you can't, you can't really, um, you've got to, you've got to hold true to that belief you have. And the problem you have with the Republican party is in that, you know, that, uh, that Trump block that you guys have to figure out how to bring back into the fold. You're asking them to do the same. You're asking them to take their core beliefs and, and set them aside to go back to the Republican party and, and to leave Trumpism. And that's going to be the challenge. Uh, do you guys see, uh, see that yeah i mean I, I totally agree it's a conundrum i mean rev and i talk off the air it, it is a it is a i mean it, it's a little like when south carolina hired steve spurrier you get the entire steve spurrier you get one of the great football coaches of all time but you get a real difficult dude Tr- trump brings that to the table that he brought an army to and jeff knows this i mean he brought an army of people who have never ever participated in political discourse they really don't know how. I mean, they, you know, they're just mad as hell at everybody, and they don't like the way things have shaken out in their lives. So, so to Jeff's point, if we're, I mean, if we have these certain beliefs and virtues that we're not going to, you know, give in on, we're asking the Trump voter too. I think that's what you're implying, right, Jeff? I mean, we're, 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 we're saying we're not going to do this, but we really need you folks to. That's what our primary is about. I mean, a primary settles that I don't have to make that decision every voter has to make that and they and it's not a coin toss that people are going to have to use their cerebral cortex a little bit and and decide what's going to work what's best for the party jeff i'm curious when you look at desantis does desantis embody the the essence of what trump is but with more polish and with more refinement or do you find that they're different different men in terms of how they'd be as presidents um, and so I, I, I believe, uh, you know, Trump is a cult of personality. Ron is not yet, but he's learning. And we, we, we've seen Trump. There's enough tape on Trump. If you go back to a quarterback analogy, right? Um, you're, you're, you're very effective when nobody knows what you're going to do. Um, but as the game goes on and, and, and you progress and you learn more and more about this person, um, you can you can pick apart their weaknesses. DeSantis, um, while he's in, let's not kid ourselves. Florida is not a toss-up state. <laughs> okay, it is it is as as red as it gets at this point. Um, DeSantis is doing well in Florida. How's he going to do when he comes out of Florida? Um, how's he going to do when people have more tape on him? How's he going to do when Donald Trump starts attacking him? That that's going to be an interesting uh, dynamic there, but uh, just be careful putting all those eggs in that basket right off the get go. Good point, Jeff. Well, explain. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate the call. That is a great analogy. We don't have enough film on DeSantis. You know, when you don't know what offense the other team runs, it's hard to defend it. If you've got a year's worth of film, I mean, good good defensive coordinators, good defensive football players can figure out a way to make it a lot more complicated. Uh, with Trump, you know what you get. I mean, there, there's a little beauty in that. I mean, it's scary. It's confusing at times. I mean, we all scratch our heads. And why did he say that? I mean, when I saw that, my daughter sent me the screenshot of the Truth Social, social post, and I'm like, no surprise here. <laughs> no surprise here. I mean, it, you know, he, he does what he does before we even know who won Nevada and, um, and Arizona. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Thanks to the two members of our delegation for coming down on Friday and kind of kicking the can of political, you know, political, I don't know, 
conversation and, you know, what happened, what didn't happen, what we thought was going to happen, what should have happened. Uh, there's a lot of questions that people have. Um, two questions in particular that people still have is um, <laughs> who's won Nevada and Arizona. I was thinking about this morning riding over. I, I was coming to work this morning and I said, Shark Week is on Discovery Channel. I guess Election Week is on Fox, CNN, and MSNBC because we're always talking about Arizona, Nevada, despite being Friday after the Tuesday that we had the election. Uh, Fox News Radio's Kristen Goodwin is in Arizona. She's with us. Good morning, Kristen. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm and, great. And I guess it's good early morning uh, where you are in Arizona. <laughs> um, simple question. What is the latest on the Nevada Senate race and the gubernatorial and Senate race in Arizona? Yeah, so starting with Arizona, uh, according to the Arizona Secretary of State's office, about 570,000 ballots still remain uncounted in Maricopa County, the state's largest elections. Officials say 1.2 million ballots have been counted and recorded, and less than 400,000 remain uncounted. They're telling us the vast majority will be counted by the end of the weekend instead of their initial goal. They told us originally 95 to 99 percent would be reported today. That obviously didn't happen. The holdup, they say, they had a historic number, 290,000 early ballots dropped off on Election Day, which Arizona state law allows, and they'll start counting those today. As far as the races in Arizona, incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly with a 5% lead over 115,000 votes, roughly over his GOP challenger Blake Masters, with 82% of the vote in. In the governor's race in Arizona, Democrat and current Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs with about a less than 1% lead. This is really close, nearly 27,000 votes over GOP opponent Carrie Lake. Again, 82% of the vote there is in. And, you know, they're still counting in Arizona, and they're counting in Nevada. Nevada's Clark County, the largest home to Las Vegas, Officials say there are about 38,000 votes that need to be counted, and they'll also be working through the weekend. Uh, Clark County, I should say, reported over 12,000 ballots last night, with officials in Washoe County, home to Reno, dropping over 18,000, putting GOP Senate candidate Adam Laxalt's lead at less than 1% over Democratic incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, a little less than 9,000 votes of a difference there, with 90% of the vote. In. And uh, the governor's race, Democratic current governor of Nevada, Steve Sisolak, trailing Republican Joe Lombardo by about three percentage points. These races are so close, and it's just, it's wild. We're still the counting cliffhanger here. And Kristen, the, the, the country believes that Arizona Nevada should be finished by now. But when I hear the Arizona election officials and the Nevada election officials, they say it's going as planned. I mean, are, are both yeah. right, or, or is this kind of? I mean, is this the new normal in Arizona and Nevada? So the thing is, that, and they keep stressing this, and it was funny. They're very defensive in both of those, uh, the two largest counties in both states, in Maricopa and Arizona, and Clark County in Nevada, uh, about the process. You know, really putting it on state law. Each state has very different laws to other states. Uh, in Arizona, you know, like I said, they had that two hundred ninety thousand early ballots. Uh, that they take on Election Day, which state law allows, We're counting those now. And then also, you know, they say uh, they, they're defending Arizona's process, telling us yesterday, unlike states like Florida, which had results on election night, Arizona law allows folks to drop off those early ballots, uh, saying those day of drop-offs broke the previous record by about 70%. Arizona law also dictates how they process votes. They start with the early vote ballots, 
then they move on but because they have so many they're really still stuck doing the uh, the early the early ballots they also verify signature verify each and they allow folks to cure or fix their ballot if they can't verify the signature and records they say they have about 15,000 to process there and in Nevada Clark County Registrar of Voters Joe Gloria also defending the laws in in Nevada explaining the holdup saying officials have to wait until tomorrow to receive any of those ballots postmarked by November 8th. Uh, and then uh, they have voters have until Monday to fix or cure their ballot if their signature wasn't able to be verified. So a lot of different uh, laws. I think that that is, and they keep stressing that this, like you said, was planned because that's kind of their process. But I think that they've just been bombarded with those early ballots that they're still waiting on. I think yesterday, Clark County, they had about 626 come in just yesterday alone and uh yeah just still processing it even though you know the um today is a federal holiday the usps says both those counties will still get their ballots in clark county they expect to have a primary count complete over the weekend leaving those cured and provisional ballots to be counted next week so we're going to see counting for a few more days we're still we're still hanging on very interesting well explained thank you chris and appreciate your time thank you that's kind of interesting so so i mean imagine this it's Friday after Tuesday. They so got Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday. So we're at Friday, and there's still votes that haven't—they they aren't in the possession yet of the people who are required to count them. That scares me. It does, but it should scare you. You want me to give you the GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip interpretation of what she just said? Let's hear. It. I mean, Kristen can't say that because she's reputable, and she's—you know—she's formal and she's uh, she's responsible and she works for a big news agency. I mean, I've, I've had—I've been given some autonomy. And some discretion on my radio show, on our radio show. So let me tell you the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu Grip explanation of what's happening in Arizona or why we are where we are in Arizona and Nevada. Did it this morning. Some of you Democrats weren't up yet, but um, but here we go. <laughs> so the, the Democrats are no longer in the voting business. The Democrats are now in the ballot business. Litter the state with ballots. Put as many ballots out there as you possibly can and then begin harvesting. And here's the way I think it happens. You ready? I hadn't voted in 30 years. In Arizona, you don't have to be a registered vote. I mean, if you're registered at the DMV, if you've got a driver's license, you're on this big list. So this list sends out ballots. You didn't ask for a ballot. You hadn't, you've never voted, but you get a ballot nonetheless. Well, you get this ballot, and you don't know what to do with it. You put it in your stack of mail. About a day or two or three later... Somebody knocks on Miss Smith's door. Miss Smith, did you get a ballot? I did, and I don't know why. I don't vote. I hadn't voted in forever. Miss Smith, did you not know that the Republicans are trying to discontinue Social Security? They're trying to abolish Medicare? Miss Smith, you probably depend on those for a certain um, standard of living. I do. I really do. Miss Smith, if you'll get that ballot, I'll help make sure they don't take your Social Security. Or they don't monkey around with your Medicare. And I told Rev this morning, it's pretty easy. If you've got this big, and politics is science. It's math and it's science. The science of politics leads to the mathematical realities. Somebody gets more votes than somebody else. Somebody wins elections. Somebody loses an election. But here's what the Democrats do. I'm convinced. They knock on that door and they've identified who Ms. Smith is. They know who's voted in three of the last four Republican primaries. No need to go see those people. They're going to vote Republican. If you vote in a Republican primary, you're probably going to go back and vote for the Republican in the general. 
If you voted in a Democrat primary, you're probably going back to vote in the Democrat or for the Democrat in the general election. But if you're a um, an unlikely voter, they've turned unlikely voters and registered voters into likely voters. And, and I think it's 2 or 3% in Arizona and Pennsylvania. I don't see any way a Republican can win in Pennsylvania unless they get in the ballot harvesting business. Forget voter turnout. It's now about ballots. How many ballots are out there? Who has those ballots? And how do we harvest those ballots? I'm going to tell you, you find 1,000 people and you knock on 100 doors a day for a week and you find Miss Smith and you convince Miss Smith that that's what the Republicans are trying to do. And all of a sudden she says, let me find that ballot. I don't want anybody messing with my Social Security or Medicare. Let me find that ballot. Will you help me? Sure, of course I will. I mean, I'm here to help everybody. I'm supporting democracy. I'm a, I'm a liberty-loving American. Miss Smith, I'll wait right here. Okay. And then, then they go through the ballot and, and you know, the, the, they get counseling on how to vote and who to vote for. You got to sign this ballot, sign the ballot, give it to the lady. She cares to drop box or cares it to the election commission. That's what I believe is happening. And I think it's on steroids. And I think the Republican Party better understand that if they don't make investments in the ballot harvesting infrastructure in these states, these 13 states that have unbelievably liberal voting laws, they're not going to win. It's going to be almost impossible for Republicans to win. Let's go to a call, and then we'll take a break. Elizabeth and Florence, good morning, Elizabeth. Hey, I wanted to step back a few minutes on what y'all were talking about, about abortion and so forth. I've spent 30 years in the education system. My problem, I'm a Republican. Uh, matter of fact, I met Mr. Rickenbach at the Coastal Conservation Association earlier this year, and he impressed me so, and I'm thankful to have him. Um, I want to say that, first of all, are we going to die on the sword of abortion? Abortion is not something that a lot of Republicans don't, a lot of Republicans are okay with having an abortion up to a time period. Have the abortion up to 15 weeks and leave it alone. We have kids dying of fentanyl. We have a suicide rate of kids dying from suicide. We have people coming in over the border. We have crime here even in Florence that is horrible. We just had something happen on Cherokee last night that's horrible. How long are we going to put everything in the pot on abortion? We're tired of hearing it. Get it settled. Get it done. And don't make it on the ticket. We're fixing to lose Georgia probably over this very thing. Thank you. Appreciate that. Very interesting call from a female. And, and I can't give a female's perspective on abortion. I'm not a female. And, and I go back to the, I mean, there's, there's a balance a politician has. And I've done it before. I mean, I've been in politics for a long time and I've served in elected office. My principles and my policy. I'm politicking. Is that in contrast to my principles or in agreement? And I think we all have a moral compass. I mean, I've got one. Cato's got me. Friol's got one. Rev's got one. The caller has one. We all have this. I mean, events and experiences shape how we see the world. There's something in all of us that convinces us this is the right thing or wrong thing to do. It's not exactly the same in all of us. I mean, all anti-abortionists aren't, you know, in total agreement. Is it 12 weeks, 13 weeks, 14 weeks, rape, incest? I mean, there's a fair debate to be had, but, but I do believe that the lady is right. Put it to bed. 
Republicans need to make a call. Here's where we stand. Here's the policy that is to be enforced in South Carolina. And now let's move on to some of the other issues like fentanyl and the border and taxes and immigration. There, there, are a, there are a multitude of issues that need to be addressed. And the Republicans need to settle this debate within. They have the votes to do whatever it is they choose to do in our state. It's time to do it. Back in a minute. We have had about as spirited and lively a week as I can remember. I mean, it's not been as encouraging for Republican voters since Tuesday, but we have shared our experiences together, how we feel, uh, what we expected, what we got, where do we go from here, uh, what is the most likely scenario in Nevada and uh, Arizona. Um, Shark Week is on Discovery. Voting Week or Election Week is on MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News. But I really appreciate the interaction, and I mean this sincerely. Um, For me to be a very average radio show host and to have such an exemplary audience, I really and truly uh, appreciate it. You guys make it so much better than it is me just um, gabbing about what I think and how I see things. So thank you um, a lot for this week of political talk. Uh, and, time, and, and a little bit of group therapy. Yeah, a little bit of group therapy. I mean, the majority of us are conservatives, and we thought a certain thing was going to happen, and it didn't. Um, but it looks like the Republicans will be in control of the House. They have a probably a 50-50 chance of taking over the Senate. And if the Senate were to have a football team and Herschel wins, my money's on the Republicans in the Senate football game because Herschel looks like he could still play today. Speaking of football, it's decompression time. You ready, Rev? Yes. Chris Clark of Gamecock Central is with us. Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ken. I'm doing well. I hope you are. And I don't think Herschel could just play on the Senate team. I think he could play a down or two in the NFL (laughs) right now at 60 years old. Um, The Gamecocks win a road game against Vanderbilt. It is Vanderbilt, and I'm the chronic complainer and and negative guy about what they should have done and what they didn't do. But but it is a road win in the conference. Um, And and I think any time you win a conference game on the road – that there's no reason to be discouraged. They go on the road again this weekend facing kind of sort of an up-and-down team in Florida. Are we catching the Gators while they're up, or are we catching the Gators while they're down? I think this Florida team's been – it's kind of weird. It, it kind of has to be nuanced, right? You look at the Vandy game, there's some nuance to it. You look at this Florida game, you look at the South Carolina team, you look at politics, Ken. Not a lot of not a lot of nuance in politics, as we have discussed sometimes. <laughs> but sometimes you got to have some. And so this Florida team, I, I'm going to say they're actually a little bit on the upswing, which is going to sound weird because you look at their last three games. You know, they beat a Texas A&M team that has obviously had a difficult season, and they had a bunch of guys out to injury or illness. So they pulled away in the second half. That's nothing to write home about per se. And then the two weeks before, Florida loses two games. But you look at who they lost to. Well, they lost a a definite playoff team in Georgia, it looks like, and a team in LSU that um, has lost a couple games but certainly looks like one of the better teams in the country at this particular moment. So one of the things that makes me think they are a little bit on the upswing is because of their quarterback, Anthony Richardson. Uh, He's one of the more talented players in the country, one of the most naturally gifted quarterbacks in the country because he's big. Uh, he can make every throw on the field um, and his running ability. You know, even when you have him hemmed in, it appears um, he can go and break off an 80-yard touchdown run uh, at, at any time from anywhere. And he has a knack for doing it on broken plays, which is very unfortunate for opposing defenses. So the, the reason that 
this has become a more difficult game as this offense for Florida has gone as he goes. And I think he's playing better the last few weeks into the beginning of the season. He's not pressing as much. He's kind of kind of gotten into his groove a little bit. And the biggest reason for that is he hasn't been turning the football over. Uh, early in the year against South Florida, against Kentucky, he was turning the ball over too much, interceptions, fumbles. Well, now he hasn't done that past three weeks, no turnovers. And so you can look at Florida's record and say, uh, you know, they've lost four games. Are they really that good? Well, they've lost to some really good football teams. I mean, uh, Kentucky early in the year at full strength with Will Levis in the fold beat them. And then you look at LSU and you look at Georgia the last two weeks. So they've lost some games, but it's a really good competition. Chris, you talked about their quarterback in Richardson. He's been up and down, but he is one of the more talented players, in the not just in the conference, but in America, I'd argue. But, but you go to South Carolina and look at the quarterback, and there's been a lot of ups and downs with Spencer Rattler. I mean, he came in as a very talented, highly recruited, highly sought-after uh, player. It seems to me that there's enough I've seen, and I mean, you, you, would, you may disagree or not, but the, the, the Gamecock offense has to design plays that allow him to extend and improvise. He looks to be more effective outside of the pocket. And the more times we get him out there, it, it seems like the more effective he is. Am I seeing something you aren't? Um, I, I certainly agree with you that you look at some of Spencer's best plays this year, um, whether it's, or even plays where there's been an opportunity to make a play and it hadn't hit for whatever reason. Like you look at the A&M game, um, you look at the the, t- the throw to Jalen Brooks that Jalen couldn't quite haul in and, and injured himself on. I mean, that was a phenomenal play. I mean, you you scramble, you buy time, you step up in the pocket, and you uncork a throw to the middle back of the end zone where only your receiver can catch it. Um, didn't hit, but still it's nonetheless an example of what he can do. Uh, you think about the Vanderbilt game. That was the best iteration of Spencer that we've seen, and I know – one reason for that was competition level. Okay, we can say that. But also, that that was what he needs to be. So we saw some of everything. We saw him uh, be able to scramble and take care of the football. He had a 15-yard run in that game that was a key run. We saw him stay in the pocket at times. You think about uh, the post pattern, the first touchdown to Xavier Leggett. That's the kind of play they have not always hit this year. They've almost hit it, um, but that was really good to see. Stay in the pocket, step into the throw accurate throw right on the money to your receiver. We saw the scramble out play where he scrambled out and he threw it up to Josh Van in the back of the end zone where only his receiver can make that play. And we saw the one-on-one throw, a dart across the middle to Juice Wells. And so I think, you know, yes, you need to get him out of the pocket some uh, because he can certainly make those plays. But there's also been an element of this offense and for Spencer Rattler where you want him to stay in the pocket a little bit more at times unless you've designed it otherwise. Uh, he, he can make things happen when plays break down, and that's when you want him to do that and take care of the ball while he's doing it. Kind of similar to Anthony Richardson in that regard, although Rattler's more of a thrower, Richardson more of a runner, obviously. But um, I think that was the best version we've seen at Spencer because it showcased what he can do, given an opportunity to make really good throws in one-on-one situations, extend plays, run when it's there. Um, I, I think that was – that was the best version, and that's what he needs to be going forward. But obviously the challenge, you know, steps up this weekend. Chris, the um, the Gamecocks were without Marshawn Lloyd. He's been the uh, one of the bright spots of the offense, um, has been as good as we thought he was going to be after recovering from a knee injury. Um, will he be available? And can the Gamecocks run against this uh, Florida defense that seems to be a little bit suspect against the run from what I've read? 
Yeah, Florida's defense statistically not great, but but again, I'm I'm going to point to the fact that some of those performances have come against you know LSU, Georgia. I mean, you look at some of the competition that they've played. I think there are some opportunities there for South Carolina. Um, it's not fair to expect Marshawn Lloyd to be close to 100%. It, we don't know yet if he's going to be able to play. If he can, I don't think it's fair to expect him to be at full strength. He's got that deep thigh bruise, thigh contusion. Um, that's kind of a day-to-day thing. It's, you can wake up one day, and I remember Shane Beamer said earlier this week that one day Marshawn felt better than they anticipated, but that can obviously go the other way. You got to keep in mind too, Ken, where that injury is. You know that that bruise very painful, and even if you can get it to where you feel good about playing, you're one hit away from it not feeling so good because of where it is. I mean, you have a thigh bruise, you're probably getting hit there on play one. You know, against uh, against the Florida Gators, so um, it, it's it's kind of different. It's a it's a big. I know somebody told us that it, it looks like you got just beat up basically with the contusion that deep. So um, we don't know yet, but your your question is a good one. Can they run the football? There's probably some opportunities, but they're probably going to have to get creative again. We saw that against Vanderbilt. You have Jaheim Bell involved, Christian Bill Smith, who was banged up also, Juju McDowell getting the receivers involved, like Xavier Leggett, get to carry on Joyner involved. So we may indeed – uh, need to see some of that at Florida, and that's going to be a critical part of the game on Saturday. Chris, last question. This is the orange crush part of the schedule. You've got at Florida, Tennessee at home, and then at Clemson. Is this the best chance for the Gamecocks to upset one of the last three teams on their schedule, and what do you think happens? Yeah, I believe so. I've, I've kind of got them ranked as Florida, Clemson, and Tennessee in that order, which is odd, you know, because the first two are road games, but I feel like Tennessee's the the best team and probably the worst matchup just because of what they can do offensively. Um, I don't think the gap between Florida and Clemson in terms of difficulty is, is that vast, really. It kind of depends on it kind of depends on which version of Florida and Clemson you get and which version of South Carolina you get. Um, I think the line on this Florida game is, you know, nine, eight and a half, something like that, depending on where you look. And I think that's fair. You know, this is a game where ESPN's FBI has the chances for Florida winning about 70%. It's probably fair also. You know, this is one of those games where you line up and play 10 times. Would Florida win, you know, six or seven of them? I don't think that's unreasonable at all based on what we've seen, road game, matchups. That said, if you're South Carolina, you got to make this a game where it's one of those three or four times. You know, so turnover margin, Florida uh, has been one of the best teams in the conference in turnover margin. South Carolina has not. Up until last week, first SEC game where they won the turnover margin was against Vanderbilt, and that was a key component of that game for them. So that's going to be a big swing category. But, yeah, I do think this is their best chance to go steal one and go improve on the 2021 record from last year. Well explained. Chris, thank you for your time. I'll I'll add this. Win the turnover battle, and you can't have 100 yards worth of penalties. I mean, South Carolina's not good good enough offensively. I mean, in the second half against Vanderbilt, they were behind the chains the entire half as a result of – just penalties that, and they're just not a good enough offense to catch up when they get that far behind. A hundred percent. It's it's a low margin of error game. You can't make mistakes. You got to play as clean as possible of a game and force Anthony Richardson and Florida to revert to some of what we saw early in the season, where they're turning the football over and 
and that's going to be your best chance to go to go win this game. Chris, how can people find out? I mean, you, you guys do a lot of work on behalf of Gamecock Athletics. Gamecock Central is a website. Uh, there, there's some VIP content, subscriber content. How can people um, become more aware of what you guys do at Gamecock Central? Yeah, GamecockCentral.com from your uh, computer, phone, tablet. You can catch us anywhere. Uh, right now, uh, if you want access to all of our content, we put out a ton every week on football, recruiting, obviously basketball season's here. Gamecocks have Clemson tonight. Baseball content also, you know, starting to ramp up. Mark Kingston talking yesterday about the beginning of the season that's coming up. Find us on GamecockCentral.com. we got a lot of free stuff, but if you want access to the even better stuff, in my opinion, uh, we got a special right now, 10 bucks, get you access, one-time fee, $10.00 all the way up until uh, August 31st of next year. And then after that, you can just become a normal subscriber, which is also not a bad rate at all. Good deal. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Ken. We'll take a break. We'll be back with Jamie Priester of allclemson.com in just a moment. You know, the natures of a politician is to be fair, right? You can't offend a one group on spot of the other. I had orange and purple stickers, garnet and black stickers. I mean, if I ran today, I'd probably have some teal green stickers. There's a big enough <laughs> fan base at, at Coastal to yeah. care. Oh, yeah. and, and I appreciate Chris Clark from Gamecock Central and Jason Priester from um, allclemson.com from coming on. We had Chris on a second ago. Jason is with us. Good morning, Jason. How are you? I'm doing just fine, Ken. How about you? I'm a Gamecock fan. You know that. I don't make any bones about it, but I don't remember many weekends where the chickens won and the Tigers lost, and I didn't know how to act Sunday morning when I woke up <laughs> after Clemson falling at Notre Dame and the Gamecocks winning at Vanderbilt. Clemson doesn't lose much. I mean, they, They've not lost many games in the last several years, but they got thumped pretty good Saturday night. Is that fair, Jason? Oh, yeah. They got smashed. They got smashed right in the mouth. And, um, you know, it's one thing to lose, man. But to me, it's it's not so much the loss. It's how they lost, how one-sided it was. Um, just flat out got whipped. The both lines of scrimmage. And, and, you know, we just don't see that Clemson defensive line get whipped like that very often. Not in a long time. You know, I, I can probably count once or twice in the last five years so it just doesn't happen very often so you know you're not used to seeing it so when you see it you know it, it kind of gives you, you you take a little pause man and you know I, I think I think I told you earlier this year I thought this program was at a crossroads and you know forget the playoff forget a conference championship division championship I know their ticket to Charlotte's already punched but I think we find out a lot about where this program currently stands, you know, this weekend. I think this is a big ball game coming up for Clemson, how, how they respond to that loss, because it was demoralizing. 
But um, and, and Jason, you warned. I mean, you said on the air that you thought Notre Dame had similarly talented players to Clemson. I mean, Clemson's a better team. I mean, no question about that. But but it, it might have been the first time in in this year where they looked across the the line and a, at a player of equal quality or or similar quality was there. There's no better place to get well than home. I mean, the Tigers play Louisville tomorrow at home. They play Miami at home, and then they close, obviously, with a big rivalry game between between South Carolina. I mean, how do you put what happened to the rearview mirror and get ready for a pretty good Louisville team? Yeah, Louisville's coming in red hot. You know, won four in a row, um, five of six. They thumped Wake Forest pretty good a couple weekends ago. And this is a team that forces a lot of turnovers, you know, and, and that's been one thing Clemson has been doing the past couple games, turning it over six in the past two games. Also a block punt that was returned for a touchdown. And I think they only had six turnovers the first seven games combined. So, you know, you got to flush that loss. I, I mean, you got to have a windshield mentality looking ahead. I I don't know how you flush it, but those coaches are going to have to find the right or needed to find the right buttons to push over this past week, get those guys over that thing. Because like you said, this is a very hot Louisville team coming to town with a very dynamic quarterback. Clemson has been susceptible against the run, you know, on more than one occasion this year. And, and this is a quarterback that will beat you with his legs, and he will beat you in a hurry if you lose contain. Uh, Jason, you're an insider. How did the team respond? I mean, when, when I mean, how was Dabo sounded? How's the staff sounded? How the players sounded after having a loss at South Bend? Uh, the last we heard from Dabo was Wednesday night, and. and he still sounds confident, but, you know, that's Dabo Sweeney. That, that's how he is. He's always going to take on that persona. He's going to be the upbeat, positive guy. Um, after the game, you know, it was a little different Saturday night. You know, I, I thought, uh, you know, I saw those guys that they, as they came out the locker room, man. You, you could see the hurt in their eyes. Coaches were down a little bit. You know, Wes Goodwin, he, he, you know, like all good coaches do, he took all the responsibility. But, um. As far as Dabo goes, you know, he, he's always going to remain upbeat, positive. He's going to back his guys. He, he He's still firmly 100% in the corner of D.J. Uyunglele. So, again, I, I think it's going to be very telling to see how this team comes out and responds to that game this weekend. When you say very telling, you would know much better than I. It sounds like you're saying that with some degree of suspicion, that, that you know, um, they struggled against – you know, inferior teams. I mean, Syracuse gave them a fit. Wake Forest gave, gave them a fit. You, you can't struggle against a team like Notre Dame and expect not to have, you know, issues in South Bend. But but when, when you say the – I mean, what 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 is Clemson missing? I mean, they, they've been a dominant college football team for nearly a decade. They don't appear to be as dominant. They're really good, but they're not dominant. What, what do you think is someone up close and personal to the program is missing? I have not seen them play with a sense of urgency or that fire this year, especially on defense, you know, um, that that we've been used to seeing with with Brent Venables in charge. I'm of the opinion that, that most teams are, are going to take on the personality of the guy coaching them. And, and Wes Goodwin is a much different personality than Brent Venables. Brent Venables is a fiery, in-your-face type of guy. West Venable, I mean, um, West Goodwin, he, he's more laid back, uh, uh, far more quiet than Brent Venable was. He, he's not jumping around in everybody's face on the sidelines. So, so that's one thing to me on the defensive side is I've not seen a whole lot of urgency, a whole lot of fire. 
And on the offensive side of the ball, I'm of the opinion that offense is a little stale. Um, I've been of that opinion probably since 2019. I, I, I remember very vividly after they got beat by LSU in the national title game, Tony Elliott talking about needing to go in and make some tweaks to the offense because teams were starting to catch up on tendencies. And, you know, then COVID hit. So I, I'm not sure that ever got done. You know, they switched quarterbacks the season after that, and Tony Elliott was gone. So I, I, I'm of the opinion that offense needs an upgrading. Um, it, it's gotten stale over the past few years. And, and you know, it, it seems like they run the same plays over and over and over. And that's just me looking from the sure, outside. Sure. But that, 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 that's just my opinion. Jason, 30 seconds. Who wins Saturday and why? You know, I, I still think Clemson wins, and but I'm not very confident in that. Make no mistake. Um, I, I think this is a game in which Clemson's 38-game home winning streak is in serious jeopardy. Just because, I, again, I'm not sure how this team responds. I've got questions about the mental makeup of this team, and I've got questions about the leadership of this team. So I, I think we're going to find out a lot about where this program currently stands beginning this week over the final few weeks of the regular season. But you still believe they pull it out at home? Yeah, I, give, give me Clemson with them being at home. You know, they hadn't lost it there since 2016. So I'm not all that confident in it, but I'm a ride with them. <laughs> I hear you, my man. Jason, how can people keep up with you and the other work you do? You can find me over at allclemson.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, at JP underscore Priester. Thank you, my man. Appreciate it. We'll talk next Friday. All right, y'all have a good weekend, man. Thank you. Do, do the same. We try to be um equal offenders of either programs. Um, Clemson in <laughs> South Carolina. I'm telling you, man, this is a state divided. We're talking about politics being so divisive. Um, the the state of South Carolina has its um passion for football. And yeah, if I ran for office again, I'd print me up some teal stickers for the Coastal Carolina um Shauna Clears. <laughs> it's uh, is it time for our trivia yet or not quite? Yeah, sure. Okay, we you can do our to. trivia now. Uh, we got to get free whole time to cue the music up. There, there you go. go. So Pepsi of Florence, for whatever reason, continues to associate with this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. Um, we're just good con men. We can figure out a way to convince them it's worth their um, effort to be associated. And we do a Monday and really? Friday trivia question that we kind of, I don't know, we, we, we I, it was formed by something I said about it takes Mondays to make Friday. My grandfather would always tell me, I don't, I don't want the weekend to be here. I want the weekend to be here. He was a Sunday takes Mondays to make Fridays. And I said, that sound good on a T-shirt. Um, and the <laughs> entrepreneurial spirit, we got T-shirts with it's actually it on, on the back. So um, Pepsi of Florence has, um, has offered to help us have a little fun with our listeners on Monday and Friday. That's what we do. So here is our latest takes Mondays to make Fridays trivia question. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Um, what is What Hebrew word means so be it? What Hebrew word means so be it? 843-661-0937. We got a lot of you, you know, um, spiritual folk out there because we hear from you from time to time, especially when we talk about some of these cultural and, and social issues. What Hebrew word means so be it? 843-661-0937. Do we have a caller? We do. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Shalom. Nope. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Do you know the answer? Hi, you're on. Hi, um, I'm in. Yeah, I'll let that slide. It's really amen. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's, oh, it's well, amen or amen. 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 There you go. Amen. <laughs> Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Melanie calling from Florence. Okay, hang on just a second. We'll hand you back off to Freehold. 
He'll get all your information. Yeah. Amen or amen. Um, so be it. Can I get an amen from our listeners as we <laughs> conclude uh, this week of radio? We got the phones blowing up now, man. Good yeah. deal. Got people listening at um at ten o'clock in the morning. I thought you folks went to work at about seven thirty or eight or eight thirty or, or nine. Or be taking a nap because most of us were w- w- woken up by a, an alarm, a tornado warning alarm on our phones. Did you get that at four o'clock this morning? I got a phone call from my daughter at three. Scared me to death, and it was because she got an alarm in Columbia, and then we get one at about four. So we had an eventful night around my house. Um, and anytime you get a call from your daughter or son at three o'clock in the morning, it ain't gonna be good. Right. Um, had a few of those. Um, had to make a few of those in my younger days. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, it woke me up at four. I didn't go out of bed. I just got up and um did my thing, getting ready for um this week already. Hey, one of the better weeks we've had. And one of the better weeks we've had is because of your participation. And I mean that sincerely. I don't know how many of you come up to me and say, I thought about calling. Stop thinking about it and do it. I'm struggling on my own. I need your assistance. Help. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.